You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads His Dark Materials, Episode 19, The Amber Spyglass, Chapters 11 through 13. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe, and my gosh, I missed his dark materials. I did. I I really enjoyed reading these three chapters with you, Eliana. And the three chapters we are going to be reading this week, like you said, are chapters 11, 12, and 13, The Dragonflies, The Break, and Tialis, and Salmachia. Actually, this morning, I saw a dragonfly when I was walking over to somewhere and i was like it's a sign it's wow a sign that's a sign it is that's a sign. i think and, so and we are we're recording in daylight so that's kind of a sign too it's magical this never happens yeah so speaking of daylight perhaps if you hear the sounds of birds it is a life coming through the window hopefully not and i actually am watching one of my friend's demons you know traveling along with someone else's demon this weekend Wow, how political. You have a severed demon friend? Very I don't political. know if it's severed, yeah, or just um, you know, far apart. An angel? There I mean, I think that I think that this dog's this dog's human could definitely be a witch. Oh, oh, yeah. okay. Well, what is what is this demon's name that you're watching? I'm watching Aiko the Shiba Inu. Aiko a Shiba Inu. I wonder I didn't really look up what that would mean. <laughs> I didn't really think about doing a demon hour for Aiko. Uh, but they're naturally charming, and, and they're very irreplaceable and valiant and faithful in character. Hmm. So think on that, Iko. I was just thinking Do- demon. Doge memes. <laughs> That's what I associate. <laughs> the most memeable of demons. <laughs> oh, very memeful. Very memeful here. Very oh my laugh. god. Eliana, Eliana, please tell us what the spoiler policy is before we go too far. Yeah. With our good friends, <laughs> we do go pretty far. So uh, we we have a we have a spoiler policy. We do okay following it. So essentially, we're getting close. We're getting towards the end of the spoiler. Policy. Exactly, exactly. We'll be free soon. Um, so we started this journey thinking, yeah, we we're gonna have a spoiler policy, and and this is what it is, right? We everything up until this point in the books is fair game. So right now that includes. Book one, Northern Light slash the Golden Compass, and book two, The Subtle Knife, and, you know, chapters one through ten of The Amber Spyglass. So that's all in here, but anything that is too spoilery goes into the discussion. The dusty, dusty discussion. <laughs> and that's where we're talking about things like the books of dust. La Belle Sauvage, The Secret Commonwealth, that Eliana still hasn't finished. I know this from the look on her face. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I know some things. I know some things. And yeah, so as well as, of course, the novellas, which if you do want to hear our takes on that, we do have those available on our Patreon for patrons, $5 and up in the Stranger Tier and above. And... You know, uh, by the time you get this episode, you'll have just missed it. So sorry, friends. But uh, we also have other things on our Patreon. Yeah. Not only have we covered the novellas in full for patrons, as you said, Eliana, but we put up monthly a special episode on one of the series we're covering or on a book 
that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. Last month, we put out a whole entire episode on Ella Enchanted, a really fun fictional piece on a young heroine, Mm -hmm. the Cinderella-type story, right? Which you also might have remembered was a movie with Anne Hathaway. (laughs) Zero out of ten on the movie, but uh, the book's ten out of ten. 10 out of 10. So we just did that last month for patrons in the Stranger Tier and above. This month we will be covering uh, a Song of Ice and Fire episode for the other series that we read, A Song of Ice and Fire by George R.R. Martin, who recently celebrated a birthday. Have a good one, George. Wow. Uh, We're doing a POV chapter on Rob Stark on a character that does not have a chapter in the books. Next month's episode for Stranger Tier and above will be something... Something, something, his Dark Materials-esque related. So stay tuned. We're really excited to bring something new. I'm having a really good time rereading his Dark Materials again. I took like a two-week break with some some life things. So now that I'm back, I'm like, wow, I really do still love this story again. Yeah, it's still really good. And like these these, uh, chapters are nice. Like they all go together pretty well. Follow off the last ones. Well, of course, I mean, it's a whole book that goes together. And along with bonus episodes we do of course have a discord for patrons ten dollars and up thunder tier and above and yeah people will just miss this but uh we do a brunch slash happy hour once a month and we will let you all know when the one for october will be but you know i i I was thinking just as i look at this outline and where things are i'm like oh man we really missed an opportunity to call it our discord huh Oh, our dust cord. It gets it's not, it gets a little dusty yeah, in there. It's not too late. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, yeah, head over to the Discord. I don't know when we're going to do brunch yet for October, but it's going to be spooky themed. So that's exciting. I'm very excited for that. I'm sure that we will have some sort of spooky twist. Oh, yes, of course. We always do. We always have a fun twist. Moving on, there's a lot of actually current events going on in the His Dark Materials uh, fandom in terms of, you know, the production for season three is in fact underway. Oh yeah, it's very underway. And I mean, I think they're honestly approaching kind of the end of production. They're in the last leg. I mean, I I heard the last thing I heard was that a lot of principal characters like Asriel, uh, Lyra, Will, etc. are on scene right now in Spain filming for like 12 weeks. So to me, that's kind of actually similar to where we're coming up to in the book, right? Of uh, the war scenes and them starting to be close together and some stuff happening. So I think we're nearing the third part of the book for them. Yeah, and also we got some news on the casting of a couple of characters that are going to be very prominent in these chapters. In fact, they are the title yeah. of some of these chapters. <laughs> Yeah, actually, only one of them is in the title of these chapters. Whatever, whatever. Yeah, so this is interesting. They cast some of the Galavespians this week. Sean Clifford is playing Agent Salmachia. Uh, you might know her from Fleabag. She's Fleabag's sister, Claire. Yes, and to quote our friend Candid, who who joined us for the last episode of season two, Candid exclaimed, ah yes, more of the Fleabag cinematic universe. Because, of course, (laughs) John Perry is played by Hot Priest in Fleabag. Might be replayed right here uh, soon. Yeah, yeah, and then also um, his demon was voiced by Phoebe... Fleabag herself. uh, Yeah, Fleabag herself. Phoebe... Phoebe Waller Bridgerton. (laughs) God damn it. I always could... (laughs) I'm sorry, I confuse all these Phoebes, all right? 
Look, Phoebe I don't know either. Waller Bridge. That's right. What... It's so hard. You can't yeah. just have a Phoebe Waller Bridge in a Phoebe Bridgers. We can't, we ha- must stop. And a Phoebe Waller Bridgerton. Oh my god, we have to stop. Uh, the number stop expanding of the Phoebe Bridge white women universe. named Phoebe with some sort of bridge, some sort of connecting apparatus in their names. There are too god, many. Well, not to burn that bridge, oh. but. <laughs> Oh, they did cast someone else, not just Phoebe Waller-Bridgerton's sister, uh, Jonathan Aris, which I actually, I have seen this guy in a couple things. He was Anderson on Sherlock, the one with Benedict Cucumber Patch, and um, what's-his-face, the other guy, you know, Sherlock, and then Stephen Moffat's Sherlock, (laughs) and he was also in The End of the Fucking World. So huh. he he's going to be a fun casting, but he's playing Commander Broke. Interesting. And so here's my question. Yeah, there's no Chevalier Tialis. Maybe there is, but it's not announced yet. But he's like the first one we really see. Yeah. I don't know. So are you collapsing? Are you Tony Macariosing oh my God, Chevalier Tialis? That's kind of weird, though, because I guess they haven't really... With the exception of, yeah, that that example that you brought up, they haven't really collapsed characters. This one, I think, is a little less... I mean, Lord Roke doesn't have that big of a role. Tally's it's does. fine. Yeah. Well, that's what my... That's why I kind of am surprised. It makes sense, like... So this is all speculation, but if they are, especially with what we're learning here in these three episodes, we get a lot of... Or three chapters. We get a lot of back and forth in these chapters of Asriel's domain and the Gal of Espians out getting the kids and what's going on communication wise with the lodestone resonator between the galavespians and the the texting that we're going to talk about go on the dropping into the dms of the galavespians and you're so in it her makes dms sense. i'm on her dragonfly <laughs> <laughs> we are not the same but really like i'm out here hatching my own um Really, though, like, I could see it does make logistical sense of, like, fine, one gal of Espion to deal with the kids and one on Asriel's side for communication purposes because that's how the Lodestone Resonator works. You don't need to, but I do think that, like, the pro is they might be able to really expand Selmachia, maybe? Like, maybe there's a, a bigger expansion for her of taking on the full role if he is cut. Now, that said, again, it's speculation, so maybe he's not cut at all, and we just don't know yet. Or it's a smaller role, or I don't know. I mean, is it not already a very small role? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Get the fuck out. Uh, but Get the fuck out, Eliana. <laughs> but I, I, I actually envisioned if they are collapsing the roles to be more of, like, Lord Roke goes on the same journey that Tiali's does rather than staying with mm-hmm. um, Lord Asriel because I think that Lord Roke doesn't do that much by Lord Asriel, Agreed. right? Well, I guess he does some stuff, right? But not it's not, I think, as pertinent. It's a little cut and dry, yeah. I think, for, for like anyone near Asriel, right? We talked about this with King of Gunway in the past couple episodes, uh, but also it's the same for Roke. I feel like because they're connected to Asriel, they don't get full flesh outs you know they're just like asriel war dudes yeah and also i mean like 
as we see in this chapter, there are other unnamed Galavespians who are there helping with texting. So mm-hmm. I guess like that's that's it. It doesn't concern me as much as the collapsing of Tony Macarios and uh, yeah Billy Costa because as we discussed during the the television coverage of season one when we were, did those episodes, there's there's I think really important thematic reasons yes. to keep it as Tony Macarios versus Billy Costa, and I still think that that was. You know, that was a misstep in removing that part of the storyline. But for this, I I just like, I mean, Tiali's, Roke, Roke doesn't have enough of, I think, an individual part that like drives home mm-hmm. any specific point that like we couldn't just have Roke instead of, instead of Tiali's. So, but, but what yeah. I do get, what I do get from these castings, especially with the portraits of these two actors that they release when they announce their casting is... Galavespians, not only are they small and have dragonflies, they have very pronounced cheekbones. Alright, that's... Oh my god. They both they both have very sharp cheekbones. They do. Yeah. They're gonna look great. I, I think that is part of it, as we've kind of discussed some of that symbolism in the past, that like Thumbelina fairy child yeah. kind of tiny person fairy tale Shakespeare shit. Like, that, that feels like very... Very elven, very otherworldly, right? Yeah. So I could see where that could be an advantage to their casting. Like, I think that could be purposeful. Yeah. Galavespians are hot. <laughs> They're like Legolas. Yeah. They're like miniaturized Legolas. This is a... What, what is it? Macrophilia slash... Um, you, can, you can get that in there. Macrophilia. Yeah, no, there's like... I, I knew someone wow. who was like into that and like the giant... The giant woman thing and stuff like that so wow is that my problem is it because i'm so big <laughs> i don't know yeah and like hello they this did is my friend stuff. eliana she's a yeah. galavespian oh my god i'm not i'm, I'm actually not that short i'm not very much shorter than you compared to your other friends chloe Aww. especially in heels it's fun for me to pretend you are i was like practically your height in heels <laughs> Actually, no. Almost. Well, to move on to actual our little inner universe, the universe we girls gone can exist in, we got some great emails from a couple friends. One of our friends, Ariana, emailed us with something that I think we missed during the subtle knife. Mm -hmm. I don't remember this. Uh, Lyra finds the exact sledge in the museum that she was kidnapped in because Sir Charles is supplying the museum with artifacts from their world. We, We do see that. Maybe it's obvious, but I didn't catch it till now. It makes sense because of his other collections. I just never put it together that he would have brought the sled over. Does that imply he was in charge of the kidnapping business that brought Lyra to Bullvanger? Mmm. Hmm. There are impl- like I mean, I think he's associated with it all. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think he's making money off of it. He's got to be on Coulter's payroll. The way the show took it was really smart and made it feel that way. Uh, and maybe I'm just watching too much succession, but he's definitely making a dime off of this he's definitely like uh, he might be involved in that and he might not probably an investor in it to some extent right an investor yeah but it's definitely i, I still see like mrs culture is the big like mastermind yeah. behind everything but the the part about like the sledge i actually you know ariana's all like oh that that's obvious and i didn't catch it until now i'm like i didn't catch it until you brought it up either i'm like <laughs> that that makes perfect sense that makes perfect sense that that that's where that came from so i that's a great catch there's a lot of familiarity in the way Coulter and him regard each other's businesses and his trade is obviously in quote-unquote trade quote-unquote you know not really trade but in stealing artifacts and taking artifacts sometimes by force 
from other worlds. Yeah. Which is kind of actually like, especially when comparing Coulter's process of how she acquires things and how she acquires power. Uh, I think she sees him stealing these petty objects from other worlds as kind of like demeaning and silly yeah and she thinks it's like he's a small man i mean we obviously see that's how she feels of him Mm -hmm. just through her actions of murdering him right Uh, and i think there's part of her that's like so satisfied when she kills him because of that because it's just like a petty like a little man thing to do to just go to another world and steal sometimes by force artifacts and sell them off in this world and think you're such a fucking king you know like oh you're so fucking big Agreed. Good for you. And I think that there, though we do see Charles slash Carlo uh, engage in murder, I almost wonder what you're saying about him being a small man. He wouldn't get his hands dirty with actually being involved in the human trafficking business because mm-hmm. he's invo- he's interested in objects. And the, somehow I, I know that Mrs. Coulter, as you said, sees that as a blight on his character. Right, that he's not interested in trafficking people. <laughs> just just <laughs> objects. Not, he's not brave got, enough for that you gotta one. You gotta think bigger. You gotta be more oppressive, Carlo. What? But that oh, is, that, that is mean, her, that is, right? Yeah, because she absolutely. does, as we're gonna talk about soon in this episode, that's how she sees people, right? Like, that's part of her, like, come to oh, the yeah. dark side will speech. She's like, you too could separate your heart from yourself and never have to fucking feel things because things hurt you. And that was her vision for Lyra. She's like, yeah, and it's gonna be great. I'm gonna bring children in. Lyra's gonna convince children to come <laughs> too. That was her idea. Look at our family big business. soulless family. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was uh, her goal. <gasps> well, I think uh, she does evolve a bit in this chapter as we're gonna see And we did get more from this email from Ariana, and I actually really love some of the things Ariana is about to bring up. The Amber Spyglass is my favorite book. I love it for lots of reasons, but one thing has always bugged me, besides Will carving up Yorick's soul, which, yes, totally breaks canon. Yeah, thank God, agreed. I I, I I thought I was crazy. Like, that is his soul. Anyways, there's a logical inconsistency with the multiverse and how the knife can't be duplicated indefinitely by worlds splitting as a result of possibility. How can fate exist if all possibilities come to pass somewhere? Why would it matter if one makes a certain choice if other choices happen elsewhere? That's not free will, it's just everything coming to pass. I had an amazing logic teacher in high school, and we used to discuss this endlessly. The conclusion I've slowly leaned toward is that something happened at least 300 years ago in the story, possibly as a result of the knife's creation. That would have caused worlds to stop replicating. Otherwise, there would be multiple subtle knives, and the decision that eventually happens with the knife would be undercut by other knives wreaking havoc on the multiverse. I think any author who gets into prophecy as a way of elevating their main characters has to be very careful with this. Also, a question, how do worlds replicate? It's never described, and I just picture it like cells dividing. I really liked this part of the email, and it prompted me to think more deeply about some of the things that were told in the story. And actually, um, I, I had some questions that were similar, but not regarding the knife, but regarding Lyra and Will and multiples of them, right? Because that is, in fact, brought up. But to start off with the, the last question of worlds replicating um and if it's like cells dividing i i will say that i think in quantum physics the division of worlds from multiple outcomes or like states existing or like certain 
atomic, subatomic particles, etc. It's it's actually described as branching. So if you think of it more like a tree, right? And realities or timelines branching off into multiple new ones. And you see that visual actually come up a lot in sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, the examples that for, for me come to mind right away are like maybe Steins Gate um, and maybe one of the most recent mm. popular iterations that you all might be familiar with is from the Loki series. And I've actually seen other interpretations of that, though, in sci-fi and fantasy, such as, uh, you know, lakes, right? Time, like, pouring off into different lakes or rivers um, or sometimes even bubbles. Doctor Who. Oh, is that where it is? That that might be one of them. Yeah, bubbles. Um, there's another one. There, there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of uh, different ways that authors come to this because, you know, as, as Ariana brought up with prophecy being, like, difficult in this, I mean, a lot of them are more interested in the idea the art of it than they are necessarily you know in in having it all hold together but yeah the bubble one is also a little different though like bubbling up in that visual from there's there's other different kinds of multiverse theories not just parallel universes ones on the idea of expanding universes right that universes never actually touch because they are like bubbles constantly uh constantly growing as opposed to how his dark materials has the worlds overlaying one another but um and there are also other sci-fi and fantasy books where it's more of multiple pasts and one reality versus and one final future. But anyways, um, I will say, you know, while I'm going off on this, uh, because it's fun, uh, some universes, they do fail and die. So there are not necessarily always, like, constantly just a growing number. A lot of them probably do because some, some of them collapse in on themselves because of the kinds of physical, like, physics, rules of physics that they have, like, don't work. Um, and I think uh, the, another series that explores that idea of how universes die, granted it's not done, so I don't know how else it will go, is Je N.K. Jemisin's The City We Became touches on this concept a little and might build on it in subsequent books, but I'm not sure. And also, speaking of things I'm not sure about, if I'm not mistaken, I think that the Dark Material podcast, the one with Ian and Amy, they do dive into more of the physics of the series of His Dark Material, so definitely go check them out. They probably have a better mind for all of that. But coming back to the question of the knife, I actually have been wondering the same thing regarding, like, why this Lyra or this Will versus all the other ones, because they brought up before there are probably multiple Lyras and Wills. Um, so how come there are other liars and bills that were not chosen, right? Or were they just not born? Like, why was this the chosen child, like, especially at that point in time? And the story asserts that there are, yeah, multiple of them, like, this will in this universe is doing this thing, probably. And though there are many different outcomes in universes, I'm kind of thinking of it like, perhaps the reason there's only one knife is maybe there were several different outcomes, right? But only one one universe had all of the things, all of the factors necessary of all these different decisions like and effects that led up to it. And several different universes, mm -hmm. because maybe it didn't have the right conditions, maybe this butterfly didn't beat its wings in this place at that time or whatever, um, the knife just never came to fruition. So only one set of circumstances allowed for its creation. And perhaps that's the case for Lyra and Will. Like maybe in one universe, Lyra, I mean, maybe she's never born. Maybe Lord Asriel pulls out, alright? Um, <laughs> maybe in another universe. Triumphantly. Yeah, Mrs. Coulter, um, 
Yeah, in took, a in another yeah took the pill, right? Or in another universe, uh, Lyra maybe she does go on this journey to the north, but you know she gets captured, never makes it all the way there, or she dies. There was danger in that journey, or or like the was severed, right? Or in other universes, maybe Will's home life gets discovered. And he gets taken away from that home, so he never goes through this set of circumstances. Or he never finds that window there, right? Because it's not in the right universe for there to be a window. There's a lot of delicate balances. But I think the idea of, like, the knife, like, and that playing into suddenly the universe is ceasing to replicate, it is really interesting, especially when you bring up the idea of free will and fate. Because, as as Ariana said, like, Fate is impossible then in this concept of a multiverse, and that's that's true. And I think that's what the authority hopes to eliminate, hopes to eliminate free will, because and then they talk about Lyra and Will leading to the end of destiny, which is, you know, another word for fate. And so getting rid of free will and choice stops the sprouting of new universes because then no new outcomes can be made. There are no choices. There's only one. And so ultimately Free will becomes this really beautiful thing, not just in terms of self-determination, but also that it is about freedom, creativity, uh, creation in and of itself, and those infinite like universe levels uh, on the, not just like and the infinity, not just on universal levels, but also really on that small and spiritual level, and shows us the connection between those two concepts. I love how you put this about about creation and creating things because not to get like hashtag too deep about let's it like do one it. does let's we're do it and welcome deep. aboard Just like me we're philosophy these. podcasters now <laughs> no i mean uh creation and art and creativity uh, that's the only way that like we thrive yeah right like when when you're feeling like caged as a human being independence and creativity is like two ingredients you can pour on yourself to to give yourself freedom again or make yourself feel free. So I think that's something really special. And I think the alethiometer kind of is an instrument in that for Mm -hmm. us, right? To to see Lyra exercise her fates and her wills and her own, like creating her own destiny in the end. And I think to the extent that like these thoughts and what Ariana sent us in this email, just some ideas of these other universes. I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. I feel like there's a lot in Doctor Who, no spoilers, that like if you feel like getting in there and digging in there to the 60 years of fun and sadness and rage, uh, as far as time travel and as like creating other universes, oftentimes like the Doctor's companions do incredible things, just these normal ass human beings. They do these incredible things of like creating alternate worlds or timelines, even when there are infinite hard points in time that cannot be changed that the doctor himself and doctor who always says oh you can't fuck with a a a still point in time like that's already written the ink's dry you can't do it and like meeting your fate with grace versus what we see in these three chapters are will and lyra really decide that yes they can be the fated children the prophesied children but they also can decide how they meet their faith and like the terms around their fate and they make that abundantly clear. Will, especially in these chapters, takes charge of that. And he's like, I, he, you know, he, he won't let he and Lyra's names be and their fates be dishonored in that way. And I love watching that climb. I love seeing that climb. And I think, like, the idea of these universes and these different places is so great how Pullman taps into it. But I love that he actually takes the stories of these children 
and like the passion and kind of like just the idea of growing up and the pain of growing up. And he actually transforms that here instead of the big picture of the universes. You know, so at the end of the day, if I don't understand personally, because I don't all the time, what dictates these new universes of how they're cut and open and how they're found, at least Will and Lyra and their young courtship will sustain me. <laughs> does it sustain you or does it kill you on the inside just a little? Oh, no, I'm fucking dying. But let's get into the story so yeah. we can die together. <laughs> oh, my God. Why are we dying together? What the fuck is going on? Okay. Uh, um... So, yes, the Amber Spyglass, chapter 11, The Dragonflies. Chapter 11 opens with a poem from William Blake. There's a little bit of Blake going on. Two out of three of these have some Blake, Blake going on, so buckle up. Blake effect! <laughs> Fuck off! Uh, a truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. This is Auguries of Innocence, lines 53 to 58, from the notebook that's now known as the Pickering Manuscript. Hmm. So it was probably written very early 1800s, but was published in the mid-1800s, probably 50s, 60s. This is really classic William Blake. We know Pullman loves him. Uh, we Obviously, I mean, Milton and Blake are two of the biggest influences of the story, but Auguries of Innocence is kind of this collection of conflicting situations in poetry, oftentimes related to prophetic judgment, ding, 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 and it uses a lot of these same tensions leveraged against themselves that we've talked about before in his poems of experience and innocence. Lots of childlike situations being contrasted with chaotic adult experiences all within one poem, paradoxes of what it means to be a kid trapped within these confines of moving and transitioning into adulthood. A man's innocence being forgotten when he graduates from his childhood. You know, these kind of ideas are really prevalent, which seems really really important for Will's plot right now, who's kind of our driving force for these three chapters. And all of this is underlined at the same time with Blake's usual anger at corruption from the elite in his society. There's a quote that kind of brings that to mind in the poem pretty close to this line, which is, every wolves and lion howl raises from hell a human soul. I think my favorite part of Auguries of Innocence, though, in context to these next chapters, The Dragonflies and The Break and Tialis and Selmachia, is probably this verse. The caterpillar on the leaf repeats to thee thy mother's grief. Kill not the moth nor butterfly, for the last judgment draweth nigh. Uh, there's so much thematically that comes out in these chapters, right? We, we'll later talk about the dragonflies eating moths. Uh, but here, specifically, there's a certain duality in repeats to thee thy mother's grief, which relates not only to Coulter, which we're going to talk about Coulter's grief as a mother representing, you know, her entire relationship with Lyra and her toxic treatment of how she loves her daughter, as well as the mother is Eve, the mother is Mother Nature, right, as Lyra, who has a destiny to fulfill. And of course, there's that line that the last judgment draweth nigh, and especially with some of the, the war themes we have coming on in these chapters, and I'm not going to say it out loud because I know you have to catch up with the chapters just in case you're not there yet, but there might be war in the future even uh, from chapters 11 through 13. So that last judgment draweth nigh in the poem feels really strong here. Yeah, that's a great find within this that connects so well to, as you said, everything that's going on in these chapters, but also just in general. And... Yeah, I think that there's a lot. I I'm excited to dig into some of what you were talking about with this mother's grief and 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, the dragonflies fuck up. Alright, they kill a bunch of moths. <laughs> and so does Pan. Um, it's actually not that big of a deal, but I wanted to say it anyway. And I'm just trying to figure out also how, you know, how Howl used to be pronounced uh, that they had it rhyme with soul. Is it like pronounced like Howl? Howl. Howl. Every wolf. Howl. Every wolf said lion's howl. I don't oh know. God. Anyways, um, so to get us to all these points that Chloe is talking about, let's start with Ama climbing the path to the cave. She's wondering how she will ever reach the sleeping girl again. She leaves food at the spot that the woman designated her to, but doesn't go straight home. She climbs past the cave through the rhododendrons to play this game she likes to do with her demon. They climb past whirlpools and through a spectrum tinted spray until both she and her demon are beaded over with mist and Kulong is in a scroll form. And the, the goal of the game is you get to the top without wiping your eyes, uh, despite the temptation, so that when you look out through your like eyelids and everything, you see like a bazillion rainbows. It's actually a very fun-sounding game. It sounds very cute. It's so cute. It's so innocent. And it's like, it's very obviously a metaphor. You know, the whole game's mm. a metaphor. Uh, and, and it reminds me a lot about... So, Catholic raised, as we've talked about, <laughs> I went through all of catechism right um i stopped after confirmation i want to say hmm. so i i mean my right of marriage was not foreseen in catholic circumstances <sighs> eliana was there she knows <laughs> i don't know if the traveling officiant in hocking hills ohio counts as uh, a sacrament you know so i'm just gonna say i stopped at confirmation but i went to catechism every sunday you know, actually, it was Wednesdays, I think, a lot of the time, because they changed it during the school year. But they gave us a lot of great propaganda about, you know, abstinence before marriage and <laughs> the good times. And so the metaphor reminds me so much of the propaganda of abstinence before marriage that they kind of, like, drowned us with in catechism. And there's the symbolism of purity. Like, in all terms, it is a really, it's beautiful how Pullman writes it, that, like, the mist, through the mist, she can see the rainbow light and, like, all the goodness uh, and that symbolism of purity is being invoked. I mean, you close your eyes and imagine this scene, and the color that comes to mind is what stained glass, right? And the mist is representing what you can't see, which is like God's light or whatever, and that you have to have faith in order to see it and not be afraid. And specifically in, in two verses, there are two phrases that I, I think like came to mind immediately for me, which were Timothy 2.22 Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And Matthew 5, 8, God blesses those people whose hearts are pure. They will see him. I think that that's very interesting because, you know, the, there's a lot of like interesting conflicting things going on here, right? With um that idea of innocence, but also that innocence isn't great, right? And yeah, yeah about the mist but and then finally breaking it and looking through it because i guess the game ends right with you having to look through the mist and really see it for what it is and mm -hmm. ironically though i was thinking of the metaphor but more actually innocently even more innocently if you will innocently um, a slot for metaphors uh besides some I know, oh my god <laughs> besides uh some of it uh being a little reminiscent of dust right like things settling on you and it also reminds me a little bit of the first book with the imagery of finding the rainbows at the top, right? Uh, of It reminds me a little of the Roarer, 
all the way up at the top at the mm-hmm. north because of all the, I mean rainbows are full of colors and aurora is full of colors right uh, kind of like I guess the end of the first book it kind of takes place a little bit at the top of a mountain and and then crossing it and of course you know having to trust your soul in order to guide you through that mist or like mm-hmm. the rainbows uh, the way that Ama is letting Kulong guide her so yeah I think faith is is really like it, it. So is such like a passage about faith. Yeah. And I also kind of love as we're gonna have a lot of Ama love this chapter. Yes. I'm pretty sure. She's the best. I fucking love Ama. This is the end, you know. Like we have to part with her soon. But she, I think she's very innocent and has a pure heart. Like if this was a fairy tale, Coulter would have like stolen her heart when she came to give them food. You know, like Coulter yeah. would have like snatched her heart out and said, "Haha, I'd eaten it or some shit." Um, yeah. So her playing this game and her being the very sign of purity and divinity is it foreshadowing? We don't know what that means, but like that she's like very pure and divine and like her actions and her big heart and wanting to help Lyra and help Will and defeat the evil witch that's in the cave. I think that's very prominent here, too. Well, she becomes the protagonist of the fairy tale for a little bit, for a few of those chapters. And then, you know, thankfully, as you said, she does leave, but only because of good reasons, right? She, at the end, is like, peace out. She doesn't even say bye. She's just like, I'm peacing out. She's like, I survived the story. I live a happy life. There's no notes on what happens to me, so you all can project. Well, she's like, everyone's everyone's fighting, and there's fires, and she's like, I'm gonna go home. Fuck this. (laughs) I hope she's Peace eating out. some of that good food that she brought Coulter. You know right, what I mean? Right. Oh, <laughs> that bread. God. Well, okay. So in the game, they finally get to the top. They get, they play their game. She expects Kulang, her demon, to check in on her and make sure she's not cheating. But he actually has stopped in awe. And she stops, too, and falls still because an immense, gigantic, ivory white bear <laughs> is staring up at her. I can't help but smile <gasps> at this. Uh, she hears a boy's voice asking, who's that, to the bear, and a fierce-looking boy with a jutting jaw and frowning eyes and bold eyebrows, and also a weird bird-shaped demon, question mark, next to him. The bird flies to Kulang, and they speak briefly, as demons usually do among each other, and she realizes they're friends, not foes. Amma scrambles beside the waterfall and greets them. I, I I had to reread like some of that because I was like, what are they saying about this demon? Then I realized, oh yes, of course it's Balthamos. And I think it's interesting that Amma realizes right away like something's weird about that demon. Not like oh, that's a weird looking bird shape, but the same way that the story tells us that you can tell demons easily from normal animals, or normal animals would like see a person, right? If they saw a demon, so Will then introduces himself, and Amma introduces herself, and now Amma feels less. Feels like she's less afraid of the bear than the boy, which is interesting. And then she notes uh, the boy's wounded fingers and feels dizzy. And Kulong and Will's demon flutter around in the air together, butterfly form. And man, I, I as you said, like Amma's a star now. <laughs> I, I just would love a follow-up story on what happens to Amma in general, right? She seems also very spiritually attuned in the same way that we saw like John Perry or something being so from her desire to help and heal people. And, and that she goes to a spiritual teacher, but also that she notes Will's fingers very quickly and has this very physical reaction to it, which kind of like shows, or maybe like she knows, that they're not normal mortal wounds. Yeah, we're going to see her do some other really kind of spiritual actions later, but it's obvious, especially in her upbringing, right? Like, 
she was raised differently than Will or Lyra was in the terms of witchcraft. Lyra's very by the book. Will is very street smarts, and she is very like she her her father obviously in the town healer. They've all kind of raised her to believe in different things, and I kind of really love that. Uh, I know Pullman likes to mix the the real with the not real. I think that's some some of his favorite stuff is like bringing education to that precipice of magic just from his own teaching background, but. I would really like to know more about Amma's village and their experience with demons and maybe their experience in, like, the the search for dust by the Magisterium, yeah. right? The resource wars going on here for the other worlds and what happens there. Especially because they're they're kind of probably like, what the fuck is going on at the mountain right now? They probably look up and they're like, why are there zeppelins and fires <laughs> in, yeah. like, a moment? A- and. I mean, you can only imagine that the soldiers would also probably have taken over their area in town at this point. And it's not fun, obviously. Uh, no one would call war fun, but like it would just be a different perspective to tell it from. Yeah, she's got a very intuitive sense of these things. And, I mean, of course, Ama learns what they seek, right? Which is a cave of the girl who is asleep. And Ama tells them, oh, I know where they keep this girl. And that this woman, she says that she's her mother, but... She's keeping her asleep, and she's like, I don't believe her, though, because Amma doesn't understand how a mother could be so cruel. And then she says that she has herbs to wake the girl, but she hasn't been able to get to her yet. And then after Balthamos translates all this for Will and Yorick, for Will, Will calls for Yorick and tells him to stay here while they go look out and, like, find Lyra. And I now just have this idea of, like, Balthamos is, like, C-3PO. Um, you know, knowing all these different languages. And it, it's just a thought. It's a thought that I have. <laughs> I kind of love that. I do. I have a new Balthamos and Baruch take that I think I'm going to bring up later for you. Ooh. I'm really hyped. I, I thought about it on my week off. You know, I had a little mini vacation. <laughs> this episode's coming to you a little late. I'm sorry. But, you know, my wife afforded me that. She let me have this thing that I desired. So I thought about you guys, though. I thought about Baruch. I thought about Balthamos. I thought about Eliana. So get ready get excited coming to you in like 20 30 okay so balthamos as c-3po let's let's wheel get those joints all greased up with some wd-40 real quick yep uh they all go with him they clamber down rocks to get to the slope and the sunlight follows them they spy mrs coulter from behind a rock and it looks like she's shaking a really thick branch of leaves and then they're like oh no she's sweeping the floor my how the fashionable have fallen uh, Will notices she looks so domestic. Her hair is tied up, her sleeves are rolled up, but domestic Coulter is ruined for him when a flash of gold appears. Yes, the vicious monkey comes to her side. I don't know what that was. Was that Bullwinkle? Anyway, last episode, we talked about Lyra in terms of like Sleeping Beauty or even Snow White in some aspects, right? I see a lot more of that with Coulter right now uh, with the prophecy of the fairest of them all. And she's the evil witch, you know, poisoned apples, all that fun stuff. But I kind of realized, like, Lyra also has that princess in a tower. If you listen to our Song of Ice and Fire episodes, you'll be more than familiar with that idea. Kind of mythos, that Rapunzel mythos, right? Uh, the stolen baby, Eve's apple instead of the cabbage for once, right? She's She's got the whole fruit and her destiny thing. And, you know, in the original story, Rapunzel was locked away for her beauty by her father, which she was kind of locked away in Jordan, I guess. But here, Coulter has locked her up for her fate, 
great, like, total Rapunzel style. Mm -hmm. Gotta keep the princess in the tower. The king's son comes to save Rapunzel, and he has to walk a dangerous, blinded journey at one point to get back to her. Yada yada. Yeah, uh, this is in the OG fairy tale. Like, he falls down from her because her hair gets cut by her witch mother, or her witch slash mother, whichever you want to go with. And... He ends up, like, barbing his eyes on thorns, and he's, like, exiled to the desert. It's all very dramatic. And he's blind. And when he finally stumbles his way back to Rapunzel and their two children that they had, apparently, she's, like, living in the desert in a wretched conditions. He, like, gets to her, and her tears go into his eyes and cure his blindness and all this shit. I don't know. Interesting parallels. There, there could be something there, is all yeah. I'm saying. And just like a few musical numbers, like, Mother Knows Best. Mm. Oh my god. <laughs> I don't know actually the rest of the words, I only know that. <laughs> Mother Knows Best. <laughs> what if the Historic Materials television show were a musical instead? Anyway. Um, I hope they do a musical episode at this point. I, I know that's silly, but you know what? The Magicians did it. The Magicians did it. Buffy did it. Um... The best shows did it, and they survived. Yeah, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, all the, all the episodes are musicals. Um, exactly. So, yes, absolutely regarding these fairy tales, very much so. And Ama, back to her fairy tale for a second, urgently whispers to them that she fears the monkey, uh, and tells them that the monkey likes to tear up bats, and Will asks well, have you seen any soldiers? And she's like, she hasn't seen any, but she wasn't really sure because there are always ghosts in the mountains. Everyone knew that, but she had heard talk of strange, frightening men at night in the mountainside. It's like, but maybe it has nothing to do with the woman. And Will thinks that if Coulter won't leave the cave or Lyra, then he is going to have to pay a house call. He asks Amma about the drug that she plans to administer to the sleeping Lyra, and Amma explains its purpose. And then he asks when she brings the next round of food, half an hour before sunset, to like meet him then with the medicine. Will, meanwhile, is very anxious. He has Balthamo stay close to him and keep an eye on the monkey. And as they walk toward the cave, the monkey is already there watching. Uh... I'd be pretty freaked out um, because that monkey is kind of terrifying. Yeah. Just saying. The monkey says something to the cave, which is, of course, presumably a coulter, who waits for Will as he approaches the cave. She's reading calmly in a canvas chair. Again, the very spirit of fashion week. Khaki traveler clothes. Peak of high fashion. A spray of red blossoms pinned to her shirt front. She welcomes him in an intoxicating voice. Which he's like, for a second, he's like, oh shit, this isn't my girlfriend's evil mom, it's just a hot chick. But no, it is his girlfriend's evil mom. He's like, where's Lyra? I want to see her. She says, she's safe, and takes him to see her. Will remembers his last fight with this hateful monkey, and he's weary to turn his back to it. But Balthamos keeps watch while Will steps closely in the cave to go find his sleeping girlfriend, He's amazed at how gentle Lyra looks, so mild, not fiery at all for once, with Pan burrowing into her neck. He lifts away her hair, kneels down, the very prince about to kiss his princess awake. He feels her face. It's hot. Will sees the monkey, ready to spring into action on him, ready to go ham, out of the corner of his eye, but Coulter shakes her head at him and the monkey relaxes. He questions her and he's like, why are you keeping her here? And she's like, why don't you sit down, Will? This is a lot of trauma to take in. She sits down on the moss-covered rocks at the entrance of the cave, 
And he kind of thinks, wow, she, she sounds almost sad, almost kind. But his mistrust only deepens, thinking it's all a veiled threat, all of it deceitful. And then we have this line that I really love, but I also hate it. I love it because it's really good. It's, it's such a fantastic, I think, encapsulation of what's going on here. But also I just hate it for Will because he is my poor child. And has he not been through enough? Uh, no, yeah. that's the joy of stories. <laughs> Anyways. He had successfully deceived every teacher, every police officer, every social worker, and every neighbor who had ever taken an interest in him and his home. He'd been preparing for this all his life. Right, he thought. I can deal with you. So in this moment, Will needs her to think that he's harmless, and I really do love the confidence that he brings to knowing that he can fool Mrs. Coulter on this. Because the very painful fact is that Will has deceived all these other adults, and these are adults who, like, specifically are supposed to care about him and his well-being. So if he can fool these people who actually give a shit, who care, and who are invested, and, and that's harder, because it'll give him guilt to do so, and because they want to pay attention to him, if he's done all that just to protect his mother and to keep going through everything he's been through and, and hiding, like, the mess of his home life where he's a parentified child, then, I mean, fooling someone who actually does pose a threat to him that he cares nothing for and because they've hurt his friend, that's nothing. That's nothing for Will. Yeah, protecting Lyra is, like, second nature at this point for him. Yeah. It does feel that way. Like, he's yeah. doing what has to be done. And like he's always done, like you said. He's always had to make these hard decisions, and that shows in this chapter and the next chapter really hard. And yeah. Coulter is really a great challenge for this. Uh, I really love the way he's written her here. She is mm -hmm. absolutely, you know, when like we get those moments with her where Lyra can feel her rage and it's like mm. almost metallic. I can taste that just reading these because she is just laying it on, right? Yeah. She, she and Will are playing a big game of cat and mouse and she offers him a drink from kind of a weird brownish dry fruit. She drinks some herself. Finally, she's like, Oh, so how did you arrive? Uh, do you have Lyra's alethiometer? What about that magic knife I heard about from my friend Charles? You know, Sir Carlo. I, I love this. This is like a something that really anchors his ploys comes back here, right? Like, she is trying to put all of her culture charm and trickery onto this. All of her Marisa, sorry, I should say charm and trickery. And it shows, and he anchors himself because people have always wanted magical instruments not just magical instruments but people have always wanted things from him and from lyra right and she brings this up in record time how's your magic knife that you happen to have recently acquired that i don't need or anything i'm just saying it now you know uh she doesn't hide her want for desire for magical yeah. protection she doesn't hide that and it's sad it is sad because like in her deranged way she is being honest for once right she does need that protection but she showed her hand far too early, which shows that she's totally desperate. She, yeah, absolutely. As you said, she's desperate. And for once, I mean, she, I, I really think she's telling the truth in a lot of this. And I'll talk about this in a bit. But, you know, you you brought up that she offers him like this weird brownish fruit. And I'm like, first of all, uh hospitable but also inhospitable anyways uh <laughs> has <that's>, meaning 
well, that, and I'm like, weird host, uh, strange place to be, and that that rotten dried fruit, right, she also consumes some of it herself to, to show that it's safe, which I'm also like, I have read and watched The Princess Bride, so I know better, but anyway, um, the whole exchange has very uh, underworld and, like, Persephone being offered the pomegranate by Hades vibes, but also... Of course, the the whole the whole temptation with the whole fruit thing that a lot of this story is based around, right? The the snake, the serpent, and the Garden of Eden, and offering that knowledge. We see it happen a couple of times throughout the story, uh, but will you know it doesn't really work for him here. It's not yet, not now, and certainly not with her. Yeah, I actually uh, I really like the idea of that the Hades vibes the underworld vibes for no reason or anything there's no reason why I could really appreciate the underworld vibes coming to this in the next couple chapters but and I, and I think you're going to go deeper into this later but it's kind of interesting because the knowledge that she's actually offering him in that knowledgeable fruit is rotten right yeah. like we know Coulter is wrong her worldview and how she treats the world because of how the world treated her that's not right and the way that she treats lyra is wrong yes will could take this path right like he could straight up accept her boon right now take what she's offering in her hand and live a half stunted life like Coulter has like defending that lifestyle in the state of Coulter's heart and being denying rejecting love weaponizing love instead giving into that animalistic angry side that he definitely has just like Coulter has that selfish side is there it's definitely within him and we see him especially in these three chapters kind of projecting that anger outwards as, as Lyra is helpless right and he just wants to protect them they're both kind of helpless as we get to the knife breaking and Coulter has that similar desperation you can see the parallel lines being drawn between their characters mm -hmm. and why here as we move on with Will and he chooses differently what that means absolutely because i mean there's so much being offered here right to to an extent there's also i think ironically right you were talking about innocence before there's innocence being offered here too right in the fruit not just the temptation to go beyond it but stay here never never move beyond it and live live out that fantasy of childhood and it's a difficult choice for him, right? It's tempting, but you know he he doesn't give in. He refuses to show to show her the knife, and then asks why she's keeping Lyra here in the state. And she says it's to protect Lyra from danger, and dispels the truth for perhaps the first time in her life. She tells her own story of loving and leaving her baby daughter, who's taken away and raised by strangers, and then she says that she is trying to save her for the third time from the dangers that surround her by hiding her from the church. But she's a little worried, because if Will found them thus, this easily, then the church will definitely find them even more so, which is true. That's what the next few chapters are about. <laughs> and she says that they hate Lyra because of what Lyra can do or what she will do. And this is some minority report shit here. And then Mrs. Coulter asks for Will's friendship. She's saying that she's alone and the forces of the world are tracking them down. And she asks what he wants. And he asks... He, he doesn't give an answer to that, right? Because he's he's slick. He's better than that. Smarter than that. He asks instead why Mrs. Coulter is keeping Lyra asleep. 
And she says, well, Lyra would run away were she awake and that she wouldn't last even five days out there with the Magisterium on her tail. And I'm like, I don't actually know about that. But anyways. I mean, she literally has before. I know, right? Uh, she might do better. Had you she'd not probably be better, yeah. with your mommy shit, Mrs. Coulter, I agree. she might have actually gotten away. Now that you say it, you were a real misstep. Anyways. I agree. I agree. I'm like, I think Lyra would have been fine. But, you know, I do have to wheel in the sympathy because so Coulter responds to Will about her feelings on Lyra. And this is like, I want to first thank the Academy for giving me the opportunity to perform this monologue. I feel like it's all been working up to this moment in my entire career as a voice actor on Girls Gone Canon. So thank you. All all those John voice moments were leading up to this. McQueen. I don't want to. There isn't I don't want it in this chapter somewhere. Or like, well, get ready, because I do. Oh my god. <laughs> she doesn't trust me. She hates me, Will. You must know that. She despises me. I, well, I don't know how to say it. I love her so much. I've given up everything I had. A great career. Great happiness. Position. Wealth. Everything. To come to this cave in the mountains and live on dry bread and sour fruit just so I can keep my daughter alive. And if to do that I have to keep her asleep, then so be it. But I must keep her alive. Wouldn't your mother do as much for you? Will felt a jolt of shock and rage that Mrs. Coulter had dared to bring his own mother in to support her argument. Then that first shock was complicated by the thought his mother after all, had not protected him. He had had to protect her. Did Mrs. Coulter love Lyra more than Elaine Perry loved him? But that was unfair. His mother wasn't well. Poor fucking Will. We're going to say this a couple times, I think, this chapter, but fucking poor Will. And and again, Coulter's desperate, but she's also intuitive She's intuitive enough to to find these digs, these subtle digs to stay on top in the conversation. And it's obvious she's really getting her jollies off, like, verbally abusing this young boy, right? Like, she digs her nails in on purpose here. She's hoping to weaken him to her resolve, weaken him to help Lyra help, quote-unquote. But but she's still drugging and poisoning her daughter, right, and taking away her (laughs) free will. And while it's a wrongful act of devotion, like it is an act of devotion, but completely wrong and horrible, the action itself is so hard. And Will, in this moment of pain and doubt, like, it's so awful. It's like, for me personally, the reason why I don't think I should have children. I have autoimmune issues. I have health issues I could pass on to them. And I don't think I could give them, like, the best life, right? And... That shouldn't mean someone should give that up if they want to have children, right? Like, that's something that you would fight through if that's what you wanted. But this feeling of pain he's feeling, like, that right there for me as someone conscious of my decision makes me not want to inflict that on him. And and having Coulter kind of be like, well, you'd do whatever you could in this position, Will. You don't understand. Knowing full well that this boy probably has had a hard life and understands that pain and that connection with his mother more than other things, you know, like, he just met and lost his dad and still cares more and worries more for his mother in this moment. And I just think it's so poignant, the pain he's feeling in this moment and what she's trying to use against him is so mean. It's mean. It's it, it's a really hurtful scene, as as you pointed out. And like, 
it's a difficulty that I think, you know, a lot of a lot of people who are parents have to go through in this moment and also people who uh, I mean, any of us, right, as we wrestle with what it means to have had parents, how our parents like raise us, etc. And it's mm-hmm. fucked up that she brings up Elaine. And as you said, like really, Riedel really digs her nails in there and that Will sees it. And I kind of wonder if she knows or if she doesn't know, right? But either way, like she assumes that Will came from someone. <laughs> as uh, I mean, that many is people his, do. like... That's yeah. her superpower, right? Like being yeah, able to true. like find and exploit those weaknesses through kind of her charisma. Yeah. I mean, that heartless charisma she has, it is digging her yeah. nails in is a superpower. Her that manipulation, right? And then mm-hmm. to throw Will off balance there. While Will does it with force, she does it emotionally. Like just as hurtful. <laughs> um Yeah. And and as you said, right, and as it points out, like that Will's mother didn't protect him and couldn't maybe really protect him and that he had had to do that for her and the complications that come with that right versus how mrs coulter has done it she hasn't really protected lyra at all right um in fact she's been one of the people that lyra has needed to be protected from as and that's kind of what's happening in this scene literally in this moment lyra must also be protected from mrs coulter but i think that's the complicating thing when it comes to love and and we say this we've said it before and we continue to say it like not here to like Excuse, like, parental abuse, but it, it is dif- different, I think, or maybe not different, but there is that complexity around, as you said, that toxicity and, to an extent, also, like, ability, right? Like, Elaine did it to the best of her ability. I don't know that Mrs. Coulter has cared for Lyra to the best of her ability for a lot of her life. Yeah. But Elaine she wasn't always afforded the opportunity to. That's also true. When she still had a heart to do so, that's right? A- like- that's true. And later on, I mean, yeah, maybe she was like, I'm making a good career in life for my daughter by uh, <laughs> teaching her to traffic other children. <laughs> that is, uh, <laughs> hey, it's a family business. It's a family Murdering kids. business. But, you know, I, I think it's, it's a very powerful scene, not just because of the effect it has on Will, but I think, like, a lot of people have had these issues, right? with their parents and finding that their parents have cared for them imperfectly, perhaps even toxically, like not every single person, but a lot of people have. And so there's, there's this really great realism to this moment of the, the ways that parents talk about and perhaps justify the harm that they do. And uh, on top of that, you have a little sprinkle of that teenage rebellion drama, right? Where she's like, of course, Lyra's not going to listen to me, but it's turned up to 11 for more drama because it is a story for the plot for storytelling. And then also uh, Mrs. Coulter brings in that whole idea of like what she's had to give up, right? A great career, happiness, position and wealth, really guilting it in there. She does not give this lecture interestingly to Lyra. She gives it to Will as a justification, right? Of like, why shouldn't like, you know, she, she's done all this for her kids. Why can't her kids just stay here and do what she asks? Why can't mm-hmm. they just, you know, help her out a little? That that whole mother guilting thing. <laughs> Am I talking no. from experience? Uh, uh, but I mean, like, and, and like, I, I think like I'm not you know, a, a lot of 
a lot of people face that with their parents. It's a big thing, especially amongst like the immigrant community. And also, um, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a reason it's a stereotype, right, amongst uh, both Asian communities and the Catholic community too. Um, <laughs> but but there's I think another like dual side to it of, and we've discussed this more in I think previous episodes. We don't need to dig into it too much. She's also talking about it very much from the perspective of mothers, right? And even in our so- society today, mothers are, you know their careers unfortunately and their happiness their position and wealth are jeopardized or placed at risk when they become mothers because people are like why aren't you taking care of your kids or whatever you you people don't always see careers and motherhood as a coexistent and then we also again this is something else we've brought up a lot in previous episodes so we won't talk about it too much that Jungian shadow of the mother uh, in regards to smothering Lyra, and I think uh, a little smattering we can talk about later of Freud sprinkled in for Will's side, but you know here we are in the cave with Mrs. Coulter, keeping Lyra from the world, keeping her from growing up and gaining knowledge. Again, that Jungian shadow of the mother. But I think we also find that it is a bit of a to come back again to Plato's cave and that allegory because if she stays here. Right? Like, besides how we talked about the cave in regards to the alethiometer before, the idea of, and the world of ideas, uh, if Lyra stays here, she will never leave the world of shadows. She'll be in the cave, and the cave is sometimes in some, uh, maybe it's Freud. I want to say it's Freud. Um, the cave is associated with the mother, with womanhood, in terms of, uh, you know, the birthing canal, the womb also being the tomb, the mother from which we come and from which we return. So all of those things mm. are here at play, too, with the, the symbolism. Um, and Lyra must leave the womb, leave her mother, in order to enter the world of the real, of ideas, and to grow, and get real knowledge versus this false knowledge that Mrs. Coulter is offering her, that she's offering Will. And the person who helps guide her out is, of course, Will. He's a little bit of a mini Virgil here, along with Ama. And uh, first they go out into the world of the moon. So it's still nighttime. There's not quite full knowledge yet and nothing else. And it's also not our real world yet. They have to go to, to this random ass other world where again there's the moon. And it's only later on that the sun rises and it casts light to true knowledge, the true form of ideas, uh, and reveals things. And also in that moment she's able to then, under the light of the sun and truth and knowledge, ask and find those answers from the lithiometer and of what to do. I really love the way you brought it all to the like womb. <laughs> womb, uh, there it is. Uh, yeah, Freud's uh, real into that. I think it was yeah, Freud. Yeah, I'm very glad you brought it right on back to the womb. Love the way you related this, especially with like the idea of like how maternal this truly is for her. Like, and this is Coulter's like last womb stand. She's like, no, no one can take my daughter from me. Only I can take my daughter from me. <laughs> you know, like it really is like a a really yeah. dominating thing from her of like. You can't do this to me, but I started reading this week, uh, I'm halfway through, Medea by Krista Hmm. Wolf, which is like a modern retelling of Medea, and there's something so interesting that really peeks out at me during this, which is like, she's monologuing, Coulter is monologuing to Will about all this shit that does not concern him, that it's really all of her projections of being a mom, right? And like how no one's appreciated her being a mom this entire time. And in this retelling of Medea, it's a modern novelization of Medea, Krista Wolf basically writes her oftentimes talking to her mother like, 
are you happy, mother? Like, did you see the way that this thing happened from the prophecy, mother? Like, you've always said it would, mother. And it's written a lot in that kind of tone. And that's how this is coming off. Like, Coulter is just like, fuck youing, middle fingering to the sky right now. Like, I did everything. I did everything I was supposed to give. And now here I am trying to protect my daughter. And it's not enough, apparently. Uh, She's losing her mind right now. I'm going to be real with you. She's she's losing her mind, but somehow finding her heart and maybe her conscience for once. Yeah. But like still obviously not there because again, poisoning daughter. Um, but I, I love that you brought up Medea because and, and bringing her into this because like Medea, Mrs. Coulter exhibits this, I think, very, again, toxic form of motherhood where Elaine Perry regressed, right? And she actually kind of mm-hmm. was the child versus acting as the mother. Mrs. Coulter has that same sort of feeling of entitlement to Lyra's body of like, I brought you into this mm-hmm. world and I can take you out, which is what Medea does with the children she and Jason has. That part's yes. fucked up. But at the same time, when I look at <laughs> Medea's life, I'm also, I, I, I'm not saying she was right to do that, but I'm also like, I'm mad for her. Every time I hear, the first time I heard that myth, I was like, I'm mad for this woman. God damn it, Jason. Yeah, I mean, she does fucking everything for Jason. Asriel, right? Jason, Asriel. And <laughs> oh my god. Like, yeah, she does. I mean, I was so I was so mad. I was like, "What the fuck?" You gotta read Are this. You, you do me? have to read this. I think you'd like I'm so it. So mad. <laughs> uh, it's by Krista Wolf, and it came out in 1998. And it's it's kind of like a little run on. Like sometimes hmm. they're like it's just run on sentences of Medea yelling at the sky, basically. Yeah, but, like other times it's good. Understandably, it's totally like Cersei Lannister in like POV form for a whole book. Like it is. Uh, and I do recommend it because it does, it does bring Coulter to mind a lot mm. in some of just the the little places of agency that she tries to take back for herself. And here she's obviously exerting them over Will, who also does not have a lot of agency in this besides his magical knife that's about to break. Yeah. Also, God, talk about settling, you know, like. She she flew away on like a dragon chariot or something, and like that woman settled for Jason's ass. God, sorry, ten year old me was that so woman mad. Settled for ten year old me Asriel. was so no, I'm mad, and I'm and I haven't gotten over it twenty years later. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe that's one of our books. Maybe you'll have to read it, and that'll oh, be yeah, one of our okay. stories to tell. Maybe. Anyway, <sighs> so. Uh, back to the story, and uh, Mrs. Coulter asks Will, "All right, so what are you going to do now?" And he says, "Well." You know, all I wanted to do is make sure she was safe, and now he can go to Lord Asriel like he was supposed to. And then he sees Marissa waver for a moment at the mention of Lord Asriel, and she's also like very surprised. She's like, "Wait, you're not gonna stand help? <laughs> you're, you're that's what you're doing?" She quickly masters her emotions and calmly says, "Well, yeah, she had hoped he would help them and protect them with a knife and help them get away." And he's like, "No, nope, I'm gonna leave now." <laughs> and she holds out her hand, giving a rueful smile as if to respect a co-chess player at the board and Will finds himself, you know, just like almost liking Mrs. Coulter he can tell that she's brave almost like a richer, more complex Lyra and I'm like, that's not fair, alright, that girl's like that's not fair, Will she is 13 and she hasn't she hasn't had time for her body to come in yet (laughs) look, I became much richer, braver and complex like last month okay, so you have to give her a little time Will we're not like fucking wine, okay? It's not like our personalities just age over time. Fuck off. I mean, they do age over time, but it's not like overnight, you know? Yeah. Jesus. God. Boys in their puberty. So 30 minutes later, Will gets to back to the camp and he tells Yorick, 
Mrs. Coulter is lying, right? They After leaving her with her little chest thing, they shake hands. He was all like, all right, bye, monkey. Bye, Coulter. Don't know what your looks between each other mean. Leaves the cave. And he comes back. And he's like, that bitch lied. And good for him, right? Like, you're still all right. You're still all right, Will. Uh, she'd lie even if it made things worse, Will says, because that bitch loves to lie. She actually does. I do think that. She does love to lie. But, you know, uh, I, I think it, to come back to something that you were talking about earlier, right? Like, yeah, I, I mean, we know it's very clear, especially as we see the story progress. Like, she is not lying, but it is easier to tell themselves that Mrs. Coulter is lying. The same way that Alma's like, well, that must be a lie about her being a mother because it's simpler, right? It's easier for them to understand that the only way she could do these horrible things is if she hated Lyra. But I think that that's the point. The deeper, more terrible truth is that she's not lying. And that's why we have those lines from the beginning of the chapter of a truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can event. Learned that lesson, Lyra. Um, she can't, she's asleep. Anyways, the people that the, it's, it's sad, right? The people who should love us and protect us still end up hurting us. And, I'm going to plug one more N.K. Jemison book. I've plugged N.K. Jemison a lot over the past few episodes, not just on this, but our other book series. But this time, the Broken Earth trilogy. Mm. That's it. <laughs> That's the plug. <laughs> That's a good plug for this, though. It does pull back to the William Blake poem. Like, that mm-hmm. is a truth told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent is, like, so crucial to the series of, like, yeah. Coulter's pain and the lies that produce from her pain and like Will and Lyra wanting to give freedom and truth to the world and all of these forces battling each other. Man. My poor broken family, dude. I know, right? You know? <sighs> I just want to fix them all. <laughs> Will wonders if he can try to pulse the knife to get back to Lyra, cutting through worlds, pull her into safety and closing them behind him. But Balthamo speaks through this heroic vision and he's like i know why you're hesitating will you were foolish to go to her all you want now is to see the woman again yorick growls in agreement and will scowls at them he's like how could you take the same side over me but he knows they're right he was captivated by her all his thoughts referred to her when he thought of lyra it was to wonder how like her mother she'd be when she grew up if he thought of the church it was to wonder how many of the priests and cardinals were under her spell If he thought of his own dead father, Jesus will, it was to wonder whether he would have detested her or admired her. And if he thought of his own mother, he felt his heart grimace. Man, that's how she gets you. You think you feel bad, Will? Wait till you read The Collectors. That bitch is haunting some people, okay? Yeah, she is, for sure. And for what it's worth, I think that John Perry would have both detested her and admired her, as Lord Asriel seems to, but not in the same way as Lord Asriel seems to. Uh... Because apparently John Perry was hashtag loyal. And um, I will say, you know, the, you were talking about the spell, right? The haunting that she does. It's the same spell she casts hmm. on all the other children, right? That she traffics to Bullfinger. But it, it, for Will, it's it's a little more than that, right? Like, obviously there's more going on here. It's a weird Freudian mishmash of, like, you know, his own mother Elaine... And then Lyra, and also, you know, Fountains of Wayne is just, like, playing in the background. And on one hand, I'm like, what the fuck, bro? Can't think of Lyra's mom like that. But on the other hand, I I, I kind of, like, 
I get it, and I do appreciate how uncomfortable this scene is in a way, and that we're leaning into that. And I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes, sometimes life's weird, and hormones are weird, and I don't love it for him and Lyra, but also I'm just like, I mean, I think I, I mean, just are we ha- doing yeah. this? Are we just gonna put it out know. there like that? Will is horny. A little, Marisa. a little. I mean, that's, that's uh, he's horny for Marisa, dude. We read it. We just read the passages out yeah. loud. Like that's why I said Fountains of Wayne is playing in the background. Lyra's mom has got her going on. but he's also like, well, uh, she does. I mean, she does, and he's also like, that's sick. Lyra's gonna look like that. <laughs> so <there's, laughs> that's part of it too. And I think that part that of the, is part of it. That is part of it. And I think again, that- part of the Freudian thing is like he's also like thinking of his mom, like. Okay, okay. <laughs> Interesting. So what about Elaine? Does Elaine... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wrong series. Wrong series. <laughs> Wrong series. But, this is Oedipal in law. Oh my god. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's uncomfortable, but like, that's uh, that's what it is. And also... Oh, hi, Aiko. Um, hi, Aiko. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad that we have a demon near us because someone's got to bring us back to some Jesus here. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, I mean that is that is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah, Will was like Lyra's gonna look like that. Hopefully, less evil. Um. Probably less evil. Definitely less evil. I mean, like even their motions, right? Because he notes that she puts the hair behind her ear, and uh, Lyra does that a lot. That's like her little trademark yeah. thing. Motion. It's interesting. Well, Will leaves the bear and the angel for a moment, listening and seeing across the valley at the treetops that tremble below. He watches vultures wheeling miles away, and he knows Balthamos is right. Marisa cast a spell upon him. Hmm. He comes to his senses, though, and hears a distant sound, the drone of a zeppelin, which Yorick confirms hearing as well. Eight of them, all in a line, and they'll be coming after nightfall. Will divulges his plan. Make an opening, take Lyra, hurry before Marisa follows. He mentions Amma's drug that will wake Lyra and how he'll need her help. He hopes Yorick will help him distract Coulter. Will also asks Balthamos to help keep watch while he finds a new world for their plan. We then get a scene cut over to the Galavaspians who are hatching their dragonflies finally, and it works kind of like Twilight imprinting. Just Yeah, kidding, kind of. I mean, kind of. Kind of. I mean, so the first thing they see is their person. They latch on and they whisper its name to them, whoever, whichever Galavespian has the demon-esque dragonfly, and they let it taste you. I love the language here. I think there's such a popular fandom question in HGM of, like, demons being born and how the process works, and I feel like the actual quote from this is really nice for it. I, I think Pullman has something like this in line in his mind for demons that The Lady Salmachia bent over the splitting cocoon of the electric blue one, easing the damp, filmy wings clear, taking care to let her face be the first thing that imprinted itself on the many-faceted eyes, soothing the fine-stretched nerves, whispering its name to the brilliant creature, teaching it who it was. Uh, When I think about demons and how, you know, Holman has said, the parent demons name the child demons. Mm -hmm. So this is almost similar to what I imagine, right? When, when the demons are born and when they appear into existence. It's all speculation, but it feels right to me. That they, like, yeah, have the eye contact, make uh, imprint, and then... But, I yeah, and then teaching it who it was. But I guess it takes a longer time. Same as for the kids, yes. right? Yeah. Takes, I'm ish, still learning ish. who I am, so... Yeah, that's for fucking sure. 
<laughs> well, I, I think you're right. We also have Chevalier Tialis texting Lord Roke about what's about to go down. The consistorial court is going to split into two units by the cave. One is going to kill Lyra and take back Mrs. Coulter, if possible, ideally alive. And the other is to take Will. They also ideally want to behead Lyra for proof. I just have to come back to you're cool with Chevalier, but you don't like Bon V. Interesting. Jotting that down. Anyways. <laughs> I love that uh, ideally is the best part of that sentence. They ideally want to behead Lyra. Like such a ludicrous thing to hear from church members, right? That they want to behead a child, which is the point, right? Like that's the whole point. Like, wow, how ridiculous. And besides like the whole like, you know, wanting to kill Mother Eve thing, it also has a sort of beheading Medusa vibes, right? Because they want the head to prove that they've killed her. And of course. As a trophy also. Yeah. So. (sighs) Well, they suggest King Agunway and the Gyraptors will arrive shortly after the Zeppelins, and the Galavespians will defend the children, knowing Will has the upper hand, so long as he has the knife, quote-unquote, dot dot dot. Tialis's dragonfly starts hatching, and then they put their harnesses on. The harnesses are made of spider silk, reins, stirrups of titanium, and a saddle of hummingbird skin, and they will wear them until they die. I will add... This is great. I love this detail here because spider silk is actually nature's super fiber. Like spider's web is literally so strong and actual hummingbirds use spider silk in their nests Mm. because it's something that expands when they get bigger and expand and grow. And it's super stretchy and strong. And then titanium is just as strong as high strength steel. However, it's 40% lighter and it's corrosion resistant. Hmm. And the idea that they use hummingbird skin is interesting because, like, hummingbird skin is thin, but it's super elastic, apparently. So it's that how makes it like, super aerodynamic. I did a lot of Googling today. I was a little stoned. But how did they uh, find that out? Yeah, I mean, Galavaspians are real. Okay. Don't know shit about birds. Bird law. I don't, I apparently, I don't law. know anything about birds. Yeah, <laughs> orbs. I don't know. I mean, obviously, these are great things to have on your steeds yeah. for battle. So they really armored them well, is all I'm saying. Yeah, and I mean, as you said about spider silk, that's why uh, that's why Spider Man uses it. Yeah, no, you're right. That is no, why. That, that is that is not a joke. That that was, I guess, a big part of the concept. But anyway, yeah, that's that's a lot of uh, really good facts, especially uh, the hummingbird skin. That it's still just astounding to me that we have learned that somehow. The anyway. fault. It made me feel bad. I do feel bad. And like, yeah. please don't skin hummingbirds. But I guess like I accidentally read a guide on how to while reading about this, and I'm pretty scarred for life now. So. Maybe they just died normally. You know, like at the end yeah. of a long, happy hummingbird life. Oh my god. Okay. Well, anyway, so yeah, they all fly off into the air on their dragonflies. Then Tiali's quickly slung the pack over his shoulder and sliced through the oiled fabric of the zeppelin skin, and. Beside him, the lady had mounted her dragonfly, and now she urged it through the narrow gap into the hammering gusts. The long, frail wings trembled as she squeezed through, and then the joy of flight took over the creature, and it plunged into the wind. A few seconds later, Kiali's joined her in the wild air, his mount eager to fight the swift-gathering dusk itself. The two of them whirled upward into the icy currents, took a few moments to get their bearings, and set their course for the valley. And I do have to add, it's almost like it, uh, that chapter ended how it started, right? You have Ama playing the game of huh. getting through the mists, yeah. and here they are, breaking through into the gusts of air. 
That's great. Trusting their dragonflies to, you know, yes. be born, rebirth. Be born. Christian shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Reverse, <laughs> goddammit. Reborn as dragonflies. And that Wait, brings us to religion. our next chapter, The Break, which opens with an Edmund Spencer poem from Fierce Wars and Faithful Loves, book one of The Fairy Queen. Shout out if you're reading La Belle Sauvage or have read La Belle Sauvage. We talk a little bit about that poem there as well, and we know that Pullman loves it. Still as he fled, his eye was backward cast, as if his fear still followed him behind. Lord Asriel paces in his adamant tower, with Lord Roke texting on the lodestone resonator, King Agunway getting ready to go out in his gyropter. They needed to get their troops on the ground. Gyropters are faster than zeppelins, but there is distance to close. Meanwhile, the Swiss guard are with the consistorial court zeppelins. Their soldiers tend monstrous crossbows, deadly enough to shoot 15 bolts per minute from 500 yards away. I just want to know why we're using crossbows. Like, they clearly have guns in this world. Like, why are we using crossbows? Like, realistically, I will say I think it's because they're cowards. Because they can stay 500 yards away and, like, not advance and still kill people. Do they not have, like, other weapons that do the same thing? Like, Well, I, I think it's obvious they do have weapons, like, other ones. I mean, Will does get the gun later, obviously, off Coulter, but uh, I think they have other weapons, but I think the crossbows are, like, I don't know, they go on, like, they talk about how they have spiral fins that are made of horn that spin the bolt and make them as accurate as a rifle, and that it's silent, which might be a really great okay. advantage, so... I think, like, the silence of it and the fact that it's as accurate as a rifle without having to be gunpowder and be a resource, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? and, and there's something weird about it, too, right? Like, so this is the Swiss guard that they have hired, and the actual Swiss guard is a minor armed force honor guard unit for the Pope. It's hmm. maintained by the Holy See in our world here in 2021 by the hmm. Pope and the apostolic palace serving as the de facto military of vatican city and it all started like originally swiss guards the italian guardias visera corps of swiss soldiers were responsible for the safety of the pope and they were an independent armed force that were employed by the roman catholic church under the pope so like they're outside of the law because of that because they're like their own force that's independently contracted and i also really something that kind of caught my eye was that they swear fealty in a ceremony at the Belvedere Court. Remember the Belvedere from last book, from The Subtle Knife? Oh, I was like, the vodka? Oh, uh, me, the Belvedere <laughs> rabbit? <Wait laughs> the it's Belvedere vodka? <laughs> Court? Um, interesting, I didn't know that. So they're just like a fancy hired militia. Great. Absolutely. And it's interesting, I originally was like, wait, are they Swiss? Like, yeah are they swiss that yeah that's why it's confusing yeah but they're actually just like a minor force like think like in a song of ice and fire they're like higher guns yeah they're like they're like uh swords. cell swords yeah they're basically cell swords for the pope they're just a holy order that's a such a misleading name because same as you i was like swiss guards yeah of course they're uh they're neutral. But I think that's, that, the, that's point, the point that, like, that they're getting they like, involved. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. also like that they're they're not. Like that's the point is that like these Swiss guards are different. They're not that. Yeah. They absolutely <laughs> take a side and it's not the people's side as we're about to see. Absolutely. The people's side would have a Belvedere vodka court. Anyway. Oh my god. 
So back in the cave, Mrs. Coulter is lying awake. The monkey is frustrated because there are no more bats to torture. And it's just smearing like fireflies instead, which they call glowflies. This is a regional thing. I call them fireflies. Some places, I think further south, call them lightning bugs. I guess they're called glowflies here. And Lyra, as you know, is still asleep in a restless dream that makes uh, the little polecat-shaped pan grind his teeth. Will and Nama are on their way to free Lyra, but... And Yorick is also close by, in armor, to hold off soldiers eventually. But what they don't know is that Lord Azrael's forces are also on their way. And they know what zeppelins sound like, so they can anticipate that, but not quite gyropters. And you know what? Same. And actually also, uh, you know, I not really same because I don't actually think I know what zeppelins sound like. I theorize gyropters sound like helicopters, right? Probably. Just because of the end of their name. Yeah. Like as as you and I live in cities where we often hear helicopters, I, I feel like I know sound. that one. Yeah. And maybe zeppelins are like more like battle planes or metal blimps. I don't know. What the fuck does I've that sound I've never heard. Like? Have you heard a blimp? I don't think I've heard a blimp. Not a, no, I don't think. They don't make sound unless you pop them. I don't know. Pop. I'm just going to imagine they're like a steel bullety kind of warplane. Correct yeah. us if you can, please. Jesus. If, yeah. If you have encountered a blimp. Or Zeppelin. I've been waiting for someone to put me in my place for like 29 years. So <laughs> When it comes to Zeppelins and blimps. <laughs> I've just been waiting for, you know, my my Kiki's delivery service moment. Anyway. Oh, oh. So Balthamos could have told them that all of this was happening, but he's too sad to do it. And that also then makes it difficult for them to talk to Ama because Balthamos is supposed to be their translator. And, you know, Will just pleads with Balthamos to stay near and be on the lookout. And Balthamos kind of agrees. He says that he hasn't abandoned Will yet. All right, Eliana. Here's the foreshadowing. I told you it was coming. Ah. I had a new take on our dangers last week. They're kind of... Balthamos and Baruch are just Angel, Patroclus, and Achilles. Hmm. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Like, Baruch is Patroclus, loving, kind, sensitive, gone first of the two, and Balthamos is kind of more prideful, the more hubris of the two, uh, yeah. having to learn to live without the best part of him that tempered him. That's so sad. Why would you do this? Yeah, I had a great vacation. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> sad and gay. So sad. So gay. Oh my god. So yeah, that was my new take. The like angels it. are just Patroclus and Achilles. I, I think, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And here they are in the middle of another epic war. Yeah, right? <sighs> and... And here he is. Achilles himself is finally living in Patroclus's like honor. You know what Patroclus would want him to do. So yeah. he does. He hasn't abandoned Will yet. He's still gonna help him. And meanwhile, our other winged friends, Tialis and Salmachia, are flying over on their dragonflies, guiding them downwards, being tossed by the wind. Will and Ama get themselves close to the cave. He cuts a window in the air, finding a world that's similar where they can take Lyra. It's bare and rocky with moon and stars and insect and pale ground. Ama joins him, making the motion to protect from evil, as she does. So again, back to Ama with her, uh, her superstitions. Her demon changes into a lizard, accordingly, which mm -hmm. must say, lizards do symbolize rebirth, a.k.a. give us an Ama being reborn into his Dark Materials series. Philip, please yes. give us Ama books. So this place is cool, but it's too bright. Will realizes as they leave it again, he's like, if we make a window to this place, we'll give ourselves away. We're, we don't have time. We have to just get Lyra and wake her up. 
Amma's scared, but she has been practicing. She she mentions basically through Kaling. So Aww. they're ready. Will cuts a super small window to look through. He sees Coulter and her demon asleep, but he can't see Lyra. They have to go into the cave themselves. The plan is going to shit right now. So they it's go in the cave. <laughs> gotta find her. Amma's like, I have to come with you. I know the cave. I know the cave. So they go together. They open a window. They can hear Zeppelins approaching, but they finally see Lyra stretched out next to Mrs. Coulter. And it, it is uh, said, their outlines had merged in the darkness. No wonder he hadn't seen her. I just really like this line, and maybe it means something deeper. I don't know, but uh, the language is really nice. And to some extent, it does show us maybe Mrs. Coulter's desires, right? To engulf Lyra, make Lyra part of her and protect her. I love that because, like, Lyra is the extension of her. But she's not. She's her own. Pr- but, like, that's Mrs. Coulter's yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Zeppelins are getting louder, the trees are moving, and so are the lights in the air. And Mrs. Coulter wakes up, which I think is mildly unsurprising because, again, there are Zeppelins. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know why they thought this was, like, the time. They're like, this is going to work right now. Um, though it, it unfortunately is about when they try to get to her that she does wake up then because she's immediately alert when they get there. And she turns to look at Will, and for a moment, he sees Elaine's face and not Marissa's. He tries to open another window, but he loses focus, and his mind leaves the knife's point, and then the knife breaks into pieces on the ground. There's no more time, though. Ama must wake Lyra. Will prepares to fight the monkey, but nothing happens, because then he realizes, oh, she's not fighting me because she has a pistol. She has a gun. smart woman. It reminds me that scene in My Immortal, uh, the classic Harry Potter Uh, fan Fan fiction fiction. where they're like where he's like what what do i need spells for i have a gun or something like that i was like true true (laughs) uh coulter moves and lets light from the outside show her pistol and in doing so some of the light shines on what ama is doing sprinkling a powder on lyra's lip watching as she breathes in helping it into her nostril by using her own demon's tail as a brush, which is classic. I fuck with my cats with this sometimes (laughs) with their tails, so I really appreciated that, you know, Amma's just using all parts of the animal today. I love it. It's so cute. It's the best. It's the cutest. And I I mean, I just like the scene also because, like, that detail about the brush and the little demon tail, I think that tells us a lot about Amma. And we've been talking about her a lot and how this is, like, very much, you know, in some ways her fairy tale at this moment. And despite Amma knowing very little about Lyra, the moment that she realized that Lyra is in danger and is being forced to stay asleep, Amma resolves to do something about it. And because of that, I think that she is, in fact, very much like Lyra. And I'm like, she's right. They probably would have been wonderful friends had they both been awake at the same time in the same place for an extended period of time that was more than, I don't know, five minutes in the middle of a danger. (laughs) And because, like, despite knowing nothing about this girl who's being forced to stay asleep, the same way that Lyra... Uh, suddenly takes action when it comes to Tony Macarios, Ama realizes that she can either ignore this problem or be part of the solution and, and do something good and, and for this person. And Ama shows like great commitment to trying to save Lyra from insisting that she accompany Will to ensure that Lyra wakes, right? She takes on that responsibility despite the danger. She could have just given the powder to Will and been like, good fucking luck. And then yeah. here, you know, like, she's using her own demon to administer the cure, which means that by using her demon's tail as a brush, she's touching Lyra with her own demon. And I think that shows, like, a, a huge amount of, like, intimacy and therefore dedication, right? She's breaking the taboo 
and undergoing this discomfort on her own end for the sake of saving mm-hmm. this girl. It almost makes her, uh, even with the cave analogy, to bring it back to the cave for one moment, it almost makes Ama like the Mary Magdalene, right? Who witnesses mm, the miracle yeah. of Jesus coming back to life at the cave. You know, three days has been dead. Longer than three yeah, days in this instance. It's, it's but been a long ass it, time. It, <laughs> it makes her like one of the most loyal disciples. You know, that she was a disciple in Eve's coming up back, coming back to life. Because that is what this is. It yeah. is kind of Lyra being reborn, coming back to life. And I didn't really think of it this way until now. That's so but. true. That's so true. That That's a great point. And, and, and the womb and tomb thing, right? She's been in this tomb. Yep. And as you said, Amma is helping her come back to life. And she's here to witness and be part of that miracle. She sees a lot of miracles happen. Yeah. Kind of, you know, in a way, if you think about it, with the, with the knife stuff. Yeah. The sounds outside begin to change. And Will recognizes helicopter sounds. Okay, I... So so that's that is what it sounds like. You were right. We do know the sound of helicopters. Chop 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 chop. We live in cities, so yes, we do. Lyra stirs, Will squeezes her hand, and Amma's demon nudges Pan. Also, a man falls out of the sky, probably died off of the helicopter. There's a lot of war stuff happening behind them. Will very carefully scavenges the pieces of the knife. Thankfully they all broke into seven pieces. Only seven. Hmm. He puts them in the sheath and uh He's like, I'm just going to worry about it later and figure it all out, how to fix it later. Very symbolic, those seven pieces. Yes, it does. It does feel so. And, you know, it's too bad. It was a handy tool while it lasted. R.I.P. The Don't know life, what's going to happen. That book is behind us. Yep, that book's behind us. We'll move on from our knife. The gyropters land on the cliff and the African riflemen come down. Will asks Mrs. Coulter's plan, and she's, like, holding you captive, basically. And he's like, well, the other side wants us dead. And she's like, yeah, but there's more than one side. The other other side might not want you dead. She hopes the Africans will win, and she looks very happy about that for some reason, about that hope and hanging on to it. And Will's like, all right, time to fuck with her. And he tries to break into all that, and he's like, you broke my knife. And she's like, no, that is all on you. That's a you problem. I personally wanted to use your knife to, like, get the fuck out. You broke your knife. And it is. It absolutely is a him problem. It's his mommy issues he has to deal with. Don't try to put this on Coulter, girl. Okay? Uh-uh. Don't try. Uh-uh. uh-uh. If nothing else, yeah, I think Mrs. Coulter, now that I think about it, and, and that's like a childlike thing, right? You know, sometimes trying to blame other things. Mrs. Coulter, uh, she takes on, she's like, nope, all of these were my fault. <laughs> she's totally fine with it well we do have good news though Lyra has spoken and she says Will and then Will like goes up to her she's about to tell him about her dream but it's hard because you know that state where you're like not quite awake right and you're waking up and now blessed Ama is like she's so nervous now that the girl is finally awake it's so cute and we have this great great line of Will breathed in the scent of Lyra's sleepy body with a happy satisfaction she was here. She was real. <sighs> my children. Oh my god. god. Anyway, so Lyra asks Will, what's happening? And he sp- explains, Amma has helped me wake you, and he tried to get here fast, but also along with me, so did all those soldiers out there. And then so more warfare happens outside, including flames, and then Mrs. Coulter takes careful aim at someone, and, and then Will hatches a plan to knock Mrs. Coulter over the next time she does that, and tells Balthamos, but then when she tur- he turns, he's like, ah, oh, there's no one next to me, because Balthamos is cowering. 
somewhere all the way in the back. And Will tries to urge the angel to help. But before that can happen, Mrs. Coulter cries out and touches her ankle while the monkey snarls and grabs something. It's Lady Salmachia. Yes, and so <laughs> Lady Salmachia is yelling for Tiali's while the monkey is pulling at her arms. And as we know, um, and as Amma knows, she's like, oh no, the monkey's going to tear her apart because I've seen him do it to bats. And then the pistol falls from Mrs. Coulter's hand. So now Will has the gun and no one is moving as then they see that there's a tiny man on Mrs. Coulter's shoulder pulling her by the hair. And then he's got his poison spur against her jugular vein. And it is a stalemate. Then, you know, Mrs. Coulter now, this time... Then she makes Will's fucking problem. She throws it to him and goes, So, Master Will, what do you think we should do now? First of all, Will's mommy fantasy gets to come true now. So oh my god. Gets Will. Coulter is oh calling no. Master Will. Oh no! Uh, oh no! It is a snappy ending to a chapter, though. Like, I do want to point that out. Like, what a great reversal that, like, just moments before, Coulter was like, Fuck you. I do what I want. And then now yeah. Coulter's like, Okay, Master Will. Now here you are, you 13-year-old, 14-year-old man-child. It is your turn to be the boss. I am out of moves. <laughs> yeah. She's almost like how? She's out. Yes. Yep. That takes us to the end of the break. The end of chapter 12 and into chapter 13, the chapter that's the talk of the town right now, right? Tialis and Selmachia, which opens with... A poem that you all should already be in on, if you remember listening to our past His Dark Materials episodes, by William Blake, Billy B. himself. Frowning, frowning night, o'er this desert bright, let thy moon arise while I close my eyes. Of course, the next verse after this is, Sleeping like a lay, while the beasts of prey, come from caverns deep, viewed the maid asleep. Mm. Little girl lost. Right? You remember that little poem, Eliana? You remember it? I do remember How could it. I let you forget it? How could well, I? Well, <laughs> I mostly remember us talking about Lycra. Free Lycra. Lycra. Free Lycra. Uh, <laughs> but now she's a little girl found, and she is no longer asleep. Congratulations, Lycra. Well, for now. I mean, she pretty much, she's going to go back to sleep soon, <laughs> She's going to go I, back I promise, to sleep. But... She's all like, I, I could do this. I can keep watch. <laughs> Absolutely not. So the chapter starts with Will knocking the golden monkey down, stunning him, and allowing the tiny lady to go free. Both the Galabaspians, I'm going to call it that because we know what they are, then move away. And then as Tiali's goes to Salmachia to check on her, he asks Will if he has the knife, and Will says yes. And then that is true, but they don't need to know that it's broken. And uh, the Galavespians say that the children should follow them, but Amma should go home before the Swiss guard arrive. Will agrees to the plan, knowing they can still escape through the first window that he made. Bye, Amma. That's it. Everyone say bye. There she goes. Yep. So you, no spoilers, yep. but this is her exit, everyone. He's just like, oh, is she okay? And then she looks and she's just scampering down a different path. I'm like, good for you, girl. <laughs> that's, Run. That's Run from the, the right end of this move. story because there's no happiness for anyone. Okay? I know. Uh, he watches the Galavespians get on their dragonflies and fly to the cave mouth where Coulter is still drowsy from the sting. And then Coulter cries out. She reached up as they went past her and cried, Lyra! Lyra, my daughter, my dear one! Lyra, don't go! Don't go! Lyra looked down at her, anguished, but then she stepped over her mother's body and loosened Mrs. Coulter's feeble clutch from her ankle. The woman was sobbing now. Will saw tears glistening on her cheeks. Crouching just beside the cave mouth, 
The three children waited until there was a brief pause in the shooting and then followed the dragonflies as they darted down the path. The light had changed. As well as the cold, ambaric gleam from the Zeppelin's floodlights, there was the leaping orange of flames. Will looked back once. In the glare, Mrs. Coulter's face was a mask of tragic passion, and her demon clung piteously to her as she knelt and held out her arms, crying, Lyra! Lyra, my love, my heart's treasure, my little child, my only one. Oh, Lyra, Lyra, don't go. Don't leave me. My darling daughter, you're tearing my heart. And a great and furious sob shook Lyra herself. For after all, Mrs. Coulter was the only mother she would ever have. And Will saw a cascade of tears run down the girl's cheeks. Sad. This this breaks my heart. It's, it's so it's difficult sad. for everyone. Yeah. <sighs> well, Will has to be ruthless in that moment, and he pulls Lyra away as the Galavespians urge them to go faster. It's a very painful start for Lyra's reawakening, right? For her rebirth here uh, as mm-hmm. the story's hero, which she already was. Uh, but that line, after all, Mrs. Coulter was the only mother she'd ever have, and Will saw a cascade of tears run down the girl's cheeks. Not 100% true, as we who have read the Outer Works know, no spoilers, but it's hard because, like, she just had her free will torn from her for 12 chapters or so, right? Like, her mom just kept her asleep, vibing. Um, She doesn't even get to make her first choice, which I think Mm -hmm. is prominent that, like, the rest of this book is kind of like that. She doesn't really get to make as many choices as she wants the rest of the book. Uh, some of the choices, yes. Some of the, the things that she chooses in this chapter, like how she's very concerned for Roger's soul's well-being, that comes up. But she doesn't get her first awakened choice. And I do understand and get it that in the heat of that moment, Will had to pull her away because, you know, she might have chosen the way his heart wanted him to the last two mm-hmm. chapters, right? Uh, I mean, he wanted to choose her he wanted to choose Coulter the last two chapters she was a very attractive choice to choose of well what if we just trusted this adult what if we trusted in that like that moment of maternity and just said mom take care of us but he knows she's lying and that's the thing right like you can't stay always in the maternal fantasy you have to leave it and mm-hmm. I, I mean yeah it's what you've said of this is what Will's heart wanted not not just here with Mrs. Coulter but like all those years with Elaine, right? Um, and how that compares. And we really have that collision of just these imperfect mothers who are loving their children imperfectly and then putting them under such such duress. And so, yeah, that maternal fantasy, it's shattered for all, all three of them, for Will, for Lyra, probably also for Elaine, but, you know, she's not here right now. She's actually a very minor part of this book and story. And the Galavespians suggest that they go to the cliff and give themselves up to the African soldiers, but Will disobeys, as he does, as teenagers do, and he heads to the window. Three men block his path, the Swiss guard, and once more I'm confused because they also have crossbows, and they don't need to fire 500 yards. Why do they have crossbows? <laughs> they also have wolf dog demons, and and Will calls for Yorick, who starts for them, but before he gets there... Balthamos 
finally helps. He stuns the soldiers, but unfortunately the soldiers are trained in like actually fighting. So they attack back at Balthamos, who who cannot take it and springs upwards into the sky. And for the second time these chapters, we see like a similar language of Will watched in dismay. Like this is the second time of Will looked in dismay when it comes to Balthamos, unfortunately. And as the guard regroups, Will takes a shot with the pistol, and his aim is true, hitting the man's heart. As he dies, the Galavespians leap from the dragonflies and use their spurs to kill the other two. And I'm just like very... I I'm sad for Will that this happened to him and for him. But again, we get to see like that very, very like preciseness in the way that he... Mm -hmm. He is, right? His shots, his hands, and that's part of why he's the bearer. I mean, he could be a soldier, right? Like, in a heartbeat. Oh, he is. he turned a different way. He's a soldier. His dad said um, he's a warrior. Yeah, he is a warrior. And there's something really rough and reminiscent of Lee's last stand here. Yes. Uh, because this is Will's first intentional kill by gun, right? Mm -hmm. Not just his hands, an accidental kill by his hands, or self-defense with the knife, but this is a real intentional kill. That he had to do still self-defense in my opinion but yeah it's like agreed. hester told lee right like it's us or them for lyra and that is exactly what's driving will here and i think there is a certain aspect of it um we talk a lot about like in puberty you know how boys being conditioned you know to just like disconnect their heart from that sort of violence and disconnect their heart from violence in general and will's conditioning here to become a soldier yeah, absolutely. It's um that's a great point of how the world's forcing that on him, unfortunately. And they run hard and for a second he wonders where Ama is, but again, she's on a different path and she's safe. Get her the fuck out of there. Soon they see the window, and Will pulls Lyra towards it, and after tumbling through, Will holds his stomach and vomits because he re realizes, as as you've said, now he's killed two men. Also, he thinks of Tulio as another death yeah. kind of caused by him, and he doesn't want it. And his body is revolted, and he continues vomiting, and it says, until his stomach and his heart were empty, and... You know, this gets brought up in a few moments, but for Lyra and the reminder of Roger, we see that a lot of her story and growth surrounds the people who die because of her or for her, as as you said, right? Leave, like we're a help in Lyra. And Will's story, it's very complementary to that of people dying because of him, of course, right? Also for that fate, but also because he kills them. As you said, he's being conditioned and forced to be this daughter and he kills them for Lyra or for himself and protecting his family. And then, so these two kids, they just have to deal with this like huge weight and that toll it takes on them. It's very much a loss of innocence, not just through growing up, right? And not just through getting knowledge, but through this very, very painful moments of forcing them to commit these horrible things or, or dealing with with that guilt it, and and we see it's very it's a very visceral pain because will's mm -hmm. feeling it so deeply and physically yeah that's something that's so special about will and lyra's bond right is like even mm -hmm. through all this madness they still are finding ways to kind of like help each other while recovering from yeah. all this craziness and lyra specifically here she has to care for pan because you know he's kind of helpless as well during this uh but she can't really touch will or do anything because she just sees him kind of convulsing and recovering from this pain he just went through it's uh i think they're both learning a lot from each other through the pain they're both experiencing and that's very obvious here yeah the galavespians snuck in with them 
and their dragonflies are actually having a great time. They're eating moths. They're hungry little dragonflies. And I found this so interesting because, like, I guess dragonflies, adult dragonflies, are born rulers of their domain, and they have to huh. prove it no matter what at every moment. And any insect that thinks they can pull a fast one, dragonflies are like, no, I'm going to eat your ass. So whether it's gnats, mayflies, flies, mosquitoes, <laughs> and other flying insects, let alone butterflies, moths, and bees, dragonflies are serious, dude. They're very serious. Maybe that's why like, they're dragons, dragonflies. I mean, they are literally the epitome of saying, bet you won't. Yeah. Bet you won't. I didn't know that they... I like bees, kind of, though. They can leave them. But but I would definitely be like, yes. I mean, butterflies are okay, too. Yes, dragonflies. Bees are great because they're so petty. I love bees because how petty they are. Because, like, I mean, like, if they choose you to to lose their stinger, they're like, I would die for this dishonor on my figure. That's true. And they also, I mean, they make honey. They're very important for our ecosystem. Fuck mosquitoes. Fuck gnats. Get them, dragonflies. Eat them all day long, please. Eat them. Butterflies, moths, and bees. Well, moths, moths are, I don't know, they're kind of annoying. Yeah, it depends on the They should be better. If they were better, they'd just be butterflies. (laughs) Oh my god. All right. Glazing past Venomoth, Tialis massages Salmachia, and they kind of start to stare sternly at the children. Will is like, oh, these motherfuckers are formidable. He tells Lyra he has the alethiometer, and Lyra's pleased, yammering on with questions, but not really asking real things. Uh, and, and she greets the alethiometer and winds it like an old friend. Will has questions for her in the alethiometer, like, how to fix my knife? But instead, he's like, are you hungry or thirsty, my darling? Uh, and they go up the slope, they keep their distance from the spies, trying to catch up while the spies follow them. Finally, they get to a cave kind of far enough away, and Will divulges the knife is broken and asks if she can see if the alethiometer has answers. Pan, in mouse form, is listening in intently, and as Lyra looks for them to get their answer, which is very exciting, it involves Yorick Burnison, Eliana's favorite. And I'm very excited about it. Lyra's also very excited about it. And she's like, wow, I can't believe he's here, Yorick Burnison! And also she's like, yeah, Yorick can do anything with metal, because Will's like, can he actually, like, fix this? But then she's like, wait, but where is he? And Will's like, well, he's close, but he's kind of, you know, in the middle of fighting right now, kind of defending us, because there's fighting. And he's like, also, uh, he's with my new friend Balthamos, and then he has to explain who Balthamos <laughs> is. And Will experiences a lot of empathy uh, as he explains what Balthamos and you have been through, and he, he blushes on behalf of Balthamos's actions, imagining that the angel feels kind of ashamed of what he's done. And then he says, but I'll tell you more about him later. It's so strange. He told me so many things, and I think I understand them, too. And part of it might be about what's going on in terms of the larger, you know, war about fate and shit, but I think it's also about love. I do think it's about love, as we've, like, complexly discussed, that it might not be our favorite written thing in the entire series, but I I like that Will is finally understanding what his dad told him, but in the terms that Balthamos, like, is learning them slash displaying them, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think he he understands it more perhaps in like what Balthamos is saying. He's like, I see that, and I I, I guess mm-hmm. it's a mix. It's ambiguous. Maybe it is also about the the other stuff. But I like to think it's about love. 
But then that makes it sad if it's about love. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) About losing the one you love, maybe? Well, uh, and right now, these people have found each other once more, and Lyra wants to know everything that's happened since she's gone, because she's Lyra. And for example, like, Will, how, why aren't you bleeding? And he's like, oh, my father cured it. And she's like, wait, um, what? Excuse me, we have to back up. You found your dad? And she, so he has to explain all that, uh, and, and talks about it, but he doesn't have to explain it to us, because we've read book two and the beginning of book three. We were there. And then Lyra talks about sleeping and how she's so sure that Mrs. Coulter was actually probably kind to her while she was asleep, uh, despite all the bad things that she did. And then about how in her dreams she saw Roger and that he was a ghost calling to her. And she's racked with guilt over her role in leading him to his death. And she realizes that she must go to Roger in the land of the dead and apologizes. And then after that, anything goes. Will just wonders, well, I wonder if can we just like cut into the land of the dead? Could it be that easy? And Lyra asks the alethiometer and says like, yes, kind of more or less, but it's also strange. And then she's like, I wonder what will happen to our demons. Hmm. What a question to hmm. ask, right? And I will say there's something interesting going on with Will here, and maybe it's just because he's being made to take charge, right? It's a lot of responsibility being put on him, especially since Lyra's had a bit of a nap, right? Not her fault, but a bit of a nap. So he actually asks, when when he asks her about the alethiometer, which Lyra is very happy to not touch the alethiometer, she's like, I'm so happy to be with Will, I'll never touch that shit again, <laughs> mood. Uh, I'm happy to be awake and have free will again. Mood. Will says, you could ask. Do it now. Ask where it is and how we get there. There's almost like a a, a tinge of anxiety and desire and drive for him to get the answers from the alethiometer. Almost a greed. Like, not not a bad greed necessarily, but like, he's definitely one-track-minded right now. And he kind of holds back at first, but he needs to figure out how to fix this knife and to still wield independence and be useful, right, to the expedition as well. And as Lyra begins to explain her want and need for kind of this this spiritual journey to go see Roger, possibly, and to almost pre-absolve her of her own guilt with Roger, right? Mm. As we talk about pre-absolution in the past couple episodes, Will again is thinking of the knife. If they didn't get the knife mended, they'd be able to do nothing at all, Will thought. I think the stress of this journey is really getting to him, especially because he's been alone for the last 12 chapters beyond the grieving Balthamos and and Ama. Rebooting and recalibrating their relationship, especially after saving her from the tomb, womb, cave, is going to take a little time till they're back on the same frequency and page. But Will doesn't really realize that fixing the broken knife and freeing Roger from his misery is kind of one and the same. Right? Like, both are super spiritual journeys, healing processes that they need to take. Lyra needs to talk to Roger and help him. And Will needs to put together these broken pieces of himself, right? The guilt and the shame that he feels in abandoning his mother. And his mother not always being able to take care of him. All these complex feelings, not unlike or opposite Marisa's complex feelings for Lyra, is what Will needs to conquer within himself. Now that he's already figured out some of the daddy side of the trauma right? Uh, And Lyra's guilt at Roger in the tracks of her parents and what they've done to her life has to be conquered, not just for the plot's sake, but for her soul's Mm. sake, right? Like, if Will and Lyra are going to be the two fated children, they have to get themselves spiritually right before doing the crazy stuff a third leg of a book requires. 
Yes, that's such a great point that these are these are very much the same, right? In part of resolving all of that, and I, the the knife has been such a huge driving part of like that guilt, right? Like, I mean, it, it seems to be tied to his feelings, to how he feels towards his mother. That that's part of the breaking, right? But at the same time, it's also tied to his his, as you said, the daddy side of his trauma because his father has been like yo, this life is part of your destiny now, right? If he wants to fulfill and take on his father's mantle, he kind of needs that knife, you know? It, it's a greed and anxiety of trying to, you know, find your place in the world. And the knife, it, it symbolizes so many things for Will, not just, you know, his connection to his father and the mission that his father has given him. But as you said, it's power, it's it's their freedom, their freedom, their ability to go between worlds and, and escape the people who are coming after them. And also mm -hmm. uh, power in terms of strength in order to get other people to, I mean, take them seriously, right? It's mm -hmm. freedom in terms of, yeah, violence so that people can't hold their uh, own will over Will and Lyra. Free him. Free, free him. Free Will. Free Lycra. And so, so we get this exchange that ties into a little of things that we talked about in the past where Lyra asks, could we really go to the land of the dead? But what part of us does that? Because demons fade away when we die. I've seen them, and our bodies well, they just stay in the grave and decay, don't they? Then there must be a third part, a different part. You know, she said full of excitement, I think that must be true, because I can think about my body and I can think about my demon, so there must be another part to do the thinking. Yes, and that's the ghost. Lyra's eyes blazed. I have some discussion thoughts on this, but this mm. is like, this is really philosophical, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we all wonder this, bro. Like, we there has do. to be a third part, right? And many people have wondered in, in the past in terms of, yeah, philosophers, theologians, and we've actually also even wondered this in the past and discussed it more in depth about that distinction between the body, soul, and that spirit or ghost, uh, and, and the differences between the three in previous episodes, and if you'd like a refresher, go check out our His Dark Materials episode 6 of Northern Light slash The Golden Compass, chapter 16 and 17, which, I mean, it's also just a very fun episode in general because we were joined by our good friend, Tana Ford. Oh, yes. And, and okay, I do also want to be fair, that's probably one of my favorite discussions of it, but I feel like we discuss this distinction like in every episode because it's like the That's the also soul. true. Of his dark materials, because it's like the soul oh. and where it goes. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, we we actually have, as you said, referenced it a couple of different times. Where, bureaucratically speaking, do we go? Probably 19 different times. Just gonna be honest. Yeah. There's been at least 19 references. <laughs> yeah. No, there, I, there's been like a lot of different times. It's just, I think that's the one where I remember doing it. Most in death, but also Tana was there, so that was fun. Yes. I'm just like, Tana was there. <laughs> totally agree. Well, this talk has definitely given Lyra hope, right? Hope that they can rescue Roger, get his ghost out, but again, they need to fix the knife first. When things are calmer internally and externally, mostly Will's head and stomach, he asks the Galavespians who they are and what side they're on. They explain who the Galavespians are, their names, and that they're working for Asriel. 
Lyra asks where they're from, and they say another world with similar problems. They're outlaws, and their leader, Lord Roke, wanted to support Lord Asriel. Their goal is to get Lyra to her father, but Lyra, of course, does not want to do that. I, I get that, like, the Galavespians are committed to this cause and all, and, and it's a big deal. But I'm just like, they realize that they literally just rescued her from her mother, right? Like, they could have a little bit of empathy and be like, wait, interesting. Perhaps she does not also want to be a pawn for her father. But I, I do think that there's a lot of merit to the points that they bring up later, which is like, I mean, they're an important part of this whole this whole equation, and that people are dying for their sake. So a lot is really mm -hmm. just resting on their shoulders, and Lyra recognizes that, it seems, and, and having suffered such a large loss herself with the Roger, as brought up in this chapter, she knows what the cost is. I do think that the Galavaspians are expecting a lot of these faded children. Like, there's a big mm -hmm. word in that two-word situation, which is children, right? Like, yes. The Galavaspian cycle of age and growth is way different, as we've kind of already discussed, but their lifespan is nine or ten years. So they have to accomplish mm -hmm. so much more than what humans get to waste away in our years. And they're nearing ten, and Lyra and Will are past ten. Their expectations are very different. They need to lower them. Lyra needs a nap, <laughs> you know? And that difference does show culturally after this. Like, Lyra laughs at the idea of making her do anything. They're like, we're going to make you go to Asriel. And she's like, oh, <laughs> you don't know who I am. Uh, and Lady Salmachia seizes Pan and puts one of the poisonous spurs to his leg, which is taboo, right? Touching someone's demon. So Lyra's in shock. She actually thinks of Bulvanger and remembers that trauma there. Will, in response, <laughs> grabs Chevalier, holding him so he can't use his spurs, ready to bash his head in, telling him, let go of Pan. Lyra saw with a cold thrill Will was perfectly ready to dash the Galavespian's head against the rock, and both little people knew it. Amazing. We love a boyfriend yes. who's ready to fight people at any <gasps> given time. I gotta say, my husband told some guy to turn his phone down on the plane the other day because this guy was just, like, blasting a movie, and I'm like, there are, like, 100 people on this plane. You can't just blast a movie with no headphones. Bring headphones, dickhead. Uh, but my husband totally was ready to fight him. So good for you, Lyra. Get yourself a boyfriend who's ready to fight all the time. Oh my god. That is that is actually, I think, what's going through her head right now. I mean, that, like, that's yeah, what we're told. Him. She's like, yeah, yeah. Fight, fight, fight. Uh, <laughs> the Galavaspians show they're ready to do anything to accomplish their mission, though, through this. Even if it means disrespecting someone else's soul a little bit. Thankfully, though, Will gives his own display of brute power in the face of these Thumbelina motherfuckers. He calms them down. Selmachia backs away. Pan hisses. He turns into a wildcat before returning to Lyra, and Will puts Tialis down. They start to scold the kids, and they're like, you're thoughtless and insolent, and people died for your safety, and Lyra apologizes, understanding that, and they turn to Will, and Will basically says, fuck you as well. Will's like, respect goes two ways, and explains, I'm in charge, and we will call the shots of what to do. Yeah, so it, it's a lot like what you're saying, right, about them being children, and I think there's like an interesting little reprise here in their meeting with the Galavespians that kind of reminds me of when they met Baruch and Balthamos, but yeah, it, it's a little reminiscent of their meeting with the angels, how Will suddenly tries to set that dynamic by asserting that he's in charge because he is stronger physically, and and as you're talking about regarding the knife and the prospect of it being broken, that um, he's still using the idea of the knife 
to wield that power. And we're seeing Will learn learn from Lyra, right, in terms of how to be deceitful. And regarding them being children, I mean, yeah, they are two kids. They're impertinent. They're disobedient. And I think, like, yeah, they're the fated ones. And it kind of is kind of, it's this funny way of turning it on its head because in the previous chapter, the Galavespians were pretty jazzed. They were pretty excited. They're like, yeah, we're going to meet the promised kids. How amazing. How blessed for us to meet Lyra and Will um, in our short lifetimes. Um, so there's something I think fun about this exchange when it turns out the children of prophecy act like kids. They're nothing like they'd imagine. They don't act holy at all. They lie and murder and they like shout and they're, and they're disobedient and annoying. And I mean, like, they also like have to do these things too, right? They have to follow mm-hmm. what they want to do because they also have their own convictions of what it's what's right. But also, I mean, yeah, they're fucking kids. They're very much kids and acting like them. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, 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 and I think there's a certain respect, though, right? Like the Galavespians yeah. are like, "All right, you got us. You guys are crazy too." <laughs> they're like, "Yeah, this kid's this kid's just." Killed one guy and he's willing to kill another. Whatever. And we don't want to be that guy, personally. Oh, no. Uh, but Yeah, the Galavespians yeah. straight up agree. Like, so long as the kids keep them updated on their plans, they like, keep us in contact, give us your, your coordinates all the time, then we're good. We'll, we'll go with you. And Will and Lyra agree, and they lie. Like, this was a total <laughs> lie, right? Because they're like, yes. here's what we actually want to do. They want to go find Yorick. They learn also through this, and as we've kind of seen, the spurs have deadly poison that the Galavespians have, but in smaller doses it causes drowsiness. So now they know, they know they're not going to die right away, and that maybe the Galavespians were being a little weak, right? Like they were just trying to show face. Uh, Lyra and Will quickly steal away, though. They leave the knife behind as collateral so the Galavespians know they come back, and they discuss their need to mend the knife soon. Now realizing how important it really is to have this knife, now they have two babysitters. In the meantime, Pan turns into a dragonfly himself, eating moths. He can't go as far, but he's fast and brighter patterned. Lyra wonders if they can trust these spies, and Will's like, yes, they're fierce, but I think they're honest. So they return back to them, saying they must sleep, and then they'll leave in the morning. Lyra takes first watch. And so we end this chapter with how lucky Will was that she was awake now to look after him. He was truly fearless, and she admired that beyond measure. But he wasn't good at lying and betraying and cheating, which all came to her as naturally as breathing. When she thought of that, she felt warm and virtuous. Because she did it for Will, (laughs) never for herself. She had intended to look at the alethiometer again, but to her deep surprise, she found herself as weary as if she'd been awake all that time instead of unconscious, and she lay down close by and closed her eyes, just for a brief nap, as she assured herself before she fell asleep. I love Lyra. I love Lyra so much. (laughs) She's such a mood. He wasn't good at lying and cheating and betraying, which came to her naturally as breathing. When she thought of that, she felt warm and virtuous. <laughs> right. She's like, I'm only doing it for Will. Oh my god. Phil is having too much fun right here. And of course, Lyra goes the fuck back to sleep. Right. That's 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 the real story. It's about Lyra going to sleep many different times. For different amounts of time like and i'm like she's like how lucky will was that she was awake now to look after him i'm like 
Reader, Will was not in fact lucky that she was looking after him. That bitch went to sleep. This bitch went. To I bed. love her. This bitch went so straight much. to bed. She was like, "You've got. I've I, got first watch." Will she says, sleeping. I got this. I'm. I'm gonna be real. I mean, that that could be me. That could be Look, me. As somebody this, who I'm often lets others down, I agree. Yeah, as the person who frequently disappears when I'm with Chloe, and she's like, and people are like, "Where's Eliana?" And she's like, "I don't know, napping." Yes, <laughs> I'm just guessing. Oh my god, I am Will, and you are Lyra. Wow, maybe. Wow. Uh, well, that closes out Tialis and Selmachia, chapter thirteen. From here on out, we're going to enter our discussion. So, if you are not caught up with the rest of the Amber Spyglass or the novellas or La Belle Sauvage, or The Secret Commonwealth in the Books of Dust. You gotta go. You gotta get out of here. I don't want to spoil you, but we're gonna get just a little dusty. We will be back next month with the next few chapters, so keep an ear out. All right. Discussion, Eliana. I know we don't have a ton. Yeah, and uh, you know what? Everyone, this is your last chance. Turn Turn the episode off now if you don't want to hear anything. But I will, I will at least say, you know, I feel like I have less and less to bring up in the discussion now because we're so near to the end of things happening anyway. And like, there's just like less stuff in the future. There's stuff that I want to be able to discuss when we actually get to it. But uh, I'll just touch on a few things that I see going on here, right? Like, um, in terms of foreshadowing, that insinuation of the ghost in the land of the dead showing that, yes, in fact, we are going there. And then we get more of that deepening of Mrs. Coulter's character to sort of herald what's to come for her in the story um, in terms of her sacrificing herself for Lyra. So on a reread, I think that really stands out in terms of her character progression. And then, of course, um, as we called out earlier, Ama and that dusty scene. I, I Hopefully that wasn't too dusty when we brought it up earlier, but like the, there's, I think, really clear connections there between that idea of like her getting to that place in her life where dust and knowledge, etc., is starting to settle upon her and, and what that means for growing up yeah i uh i think there's there's so much for coulter this is such a big like turn for her right that she uh from here on out her motives completely change and she becomes kind of a martyr kind of like just very martyr like and uh yes i i kind of love it i love coulter's character from here on out and the one thing that really stood out to me this time, and you actually highlighted the entire passage that made me like think about it, which was when Lyra's saying, could we really go to the land of the dead? And our bodies, they just stay in the grave and decay. And Will says, there must be a third part, a different part. And she says, I think that must be true, because I can think about my body, and I can think about my demon, so there must be another part to do the thinking. Now, in The Secret Commonwealth, there is the new way to read the alethiometer, right? Uh, and you get kind of motion sick mm. and sick to your stomach when you do this, but you separate yourself while you read it. You separate yourself from your body almost. Interesting. So do you think the new way of reading the alethiometer and dissociating from your body like that is using that third part? I think that's interesting. Because that that's really interesting because um, it's using less of... You know, the original way of reading the alethiometer, as we're told, uh, has to do with learning everything and, and, and that mm-hmm. stress, right, on 
acquiring knowledge, learning, and creating new knowledge uh, has to do with the creation of dust, which is tied with demons and the soul. Mm -hmm. So I think this idea that you're saying of it being more tied to the spirit and how, you know, even Pan doesn't seem to really like, doesn't like this new method of reading the alethiometer mm -hmm. um, speaks to what you're saying. And, you know, we talk about Ama a lot this chapters uh, as we had to say goodbye Bless to her. Bless her. And that said, like, you brought up kind of how she seems to have a different sense in them about some of this stuff and that she seems a little, mm -hmm. a, a little more superstitious. And it's almost like that superstition is that third, right? Like, Will is very much of the body. Lyra is very much of the mind. And Ama is very much of the spirit, it seemed, and, like, of being spiritually connected in these chapters, almost like standing in as that third part. So it does feel to me like maybe the new way of reading the alethiometer, the new way that doesn't require the books and the studying of separating yourself from all of it, could be using the spirit, using that spiritual energy. Especially yeah. when we talk about like hmm. the rose oil and the different things coming up, which that reminded me a little bit, uh, Ama's game with Kulang of climbing up in the mist and not wiping your eyes. Uh almost reminded me yeah. of the rose oil being used in eyes to see hmm. that is yeah Just a thought. i see that and and also also um to come to that the idea of seeing through it um seeing through the rainbows mm -hmm. which again is reminiscent of an aurora aurora borealis and looking at it but right in front of your eyes is that a little like what's going on with malcolm malcolm's and his, eye uh, when when he yes. has his migraines and then he sees the he sees his own little personal roarer. Yeah, the uh the actual like migraine kind of eye borealis without the migraine. That's a really astute point. I didn't think about it and I should have cuz eyes. That's interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Well, what I only thought about it cuz you brought up the rose oil. What I actually legitimately well, what could it mean? <laughs> takes two to tango in the discussion, okay? You know, the last thing I do want to say, and something I didn't notice till like now, certainly is, certainly is, a lot of Coulter casting spells in these three chapters. Hmm. Uh, I thought about it a little bit when we came to like, you know, almost Snow White style, her being the Keeper of Lyra right now, but also oh, yeah. Will literally says Coulter cast a spell on him. I mean, and she's been casting spells on Lyra in a way, too. These mm -hmm. sleeping spells. So, it is interesting. I mean, what if she's a witch? I'm just saying. She might be, in a way. We just don't know. I'm gonna need Philip to uh, publish that third book. Yeah, I think he might He might address the dress. Flips to the end of the book. Holter's a Teletubby. Oh my god, Tinky Winky. Oh my god, this is worse than <laughs> That's Death been going around. Okay, that has been going around on like the Teletubbies like song on TikTok and like now like we just sing random things rhyming, going like Tinky Winky or like who knows what, like rhyming. It's ruined my Maybe life. Falters a Teletubby. Ruining lives, that's true. Well, that closes out our discussion <laughs> is, for the it. Amber Spyglass episode <laughs> That's the discussion. Is Coulter a Teletubby. We hope that you'll tune in next <laughs> month for the next, the 20th chapter of our His Dark Materials main trilogy episodes to hear more astute thoughts like, is Coulter a Teletubby? <laughs> yes, that is, I think that's the main takeaway. That's the main takeaway from the episode and, uh, 
I mean, from everything we've done, that all of our analysis has been leading up to that moment. So, oh my God. And if she's a Teletubby, which one? <laughs> Listeners, please let us know if you'd like by sending us an email or a tweet on Girls Gone Canon, C A N O N, on Twitter, or you can send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com, which Teletubby is Mrs. Coulter. It's Poe. Anyways. If you are not already, make sure you're subscribed to us on a streaming service near you, where you can check us out every month when we drop new His Dark Materials episodes last Friday of the month-ish, depending on the week and the time. Uh, (laughs) You can find us on Google Podcasts, on iTunes, on Spotify, Stitcher, Acast, on Amazon Podcasts, on Pandora. You name it, we're there. And on Podbean, where this is all hosted. And of course, you can also always find our episodes on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where we have all of these. Uh, our patrons get a special RSS feed where they have access to all of our episodes for the public, as well as bonus episodes once a month. This month's episode is going to be our Robisode about Song of Ice and Fire's character, Rob Stark. Next month will be a His Dark Materials episode. And uh, stay tuned to learn what the, the the topic for that will be. Yes. As always, thanks so much for listening. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. We'll see you next month. Tinky winky. Oh my Goodbye. god. Uh... <laughs>